This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information, the ideas you need to grow a healthier, happier life, to live longer, hopefully, love stronger, and lead. You know, lead the life you want to lead. Top of the morning to you. It is a crazy day. Russian plane, a Russian jet shot down by uh, a a couple of Turkish, I guess, F-16s. Don't fly in our airspace. Apparently 10 warnings, but Russia's saying, no, 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 no. We weren't in your airspace. And Putin says it was a stab in the back from from uh, Turkey. Holy cow. This is what we were talking about, though. You got to set some rules on how we're going and some communication on how we're going to have all of these different entities in the region. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. Remember, we were talking about what if it's an, what if an American plane gets too close to a Russian plane? They're going to be trouble. But it was a Turkish plane, which is crazy because Turkey uh, and Russia, Russia and they're they're economic partners. So this Whoa. is getting crazy. Yeah. See, Turkey Jeez. is Turkey is a NATO member. By the way, Turkey couldn't be more fitting for this time of the season. <laughs> it's seasonal. Yeah. <laughs> It's festive. Yeah. So Turkey is a NATO country. Yeah. So if Russia strays across their border, which they say they did, right? They defended themselves. They said they. Uh, I was reading this morning. They 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 uh, the Russian airplane uh, ignored ten warnings. Yeah. That they violated the airspace of Turkey. Turkey attacks. At some point, the NATO accord kicks in, and like right. all these countries are, to, it, it, it's like but, the World War Two thing, where or World War One, where one incident, and then like all these countries jump in, and then it turns into a big mess. Well, and that's the deal. To Turkey ran down. to NATO, but I think NATO's like, D- don't bring us into this. Yeah, like, no, we we did not. We don't know what you're doing. So now they're they're looking at it, thinking Vladimir Putin's not going to let this just stand. No. So how is he going to retaliate? Uh, does he go militarily or does he just shut off the natural gas since that's where all of Turkey's natural gas yeah. comes from? Or Russia you pipelines. say – exactly. Or you say, look, just alleviate some of those uh, – some of those um, – what are they called? The restrictions that have been placed on Russia. Just take some of those off yeah. and we'll call it even. <laughs> this I, is crazy. Yeah. This isn't going anywhere. I mean this is – this is the complication of – and Russia's like, we need to talk because now we need to get serious about a coalition. See, Russia wants a coalition. France is talking about a coalition. Obama keeps talking about a coalition. Well, Obama says we've got a coalition. Yeah, well, we have uh, one. And we're leading it. Isn't You guys are not noticing this? And now Russia's like, we need a coalition. Yeah. They're like usurping the position of the United States now. Oh, this is crazy. For one thing, they need a unified – Air traffic control over that area. Yeah, yeah. Because they this, a, this is going to continue to happen. They need a playground monitor. Yeah. they need Somebody some of, that can watch the playground and say, kids, not too close to the fence. Make sure no tackle football is happening out there on the field. Yeah. No one gets hurt. Don't throw snowballs. Yeah. Do you remember? That's what they need is a monitor. But the how do you do this? I mean, this is I, – I can hardly wait for China to start playing. 
They need to come in and yeah. start playing. Yeah, because they said they want to get involved too. That'd be great. Yeah, just put everyone in airplanes flying around with missiles and see what happens. I mean, really, this if we all just put our attention on ISIS, we have a lot of power here. Yeah. Let's just get her done. But instead, now we have Turkey and Russia fighting, which has got to make ISIS feel like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sweet. They just want chaos. Oh, man. Do you figure out a way to make this work? <sighs> Trump. Trump is... Trump. Trump's still going off he has on the quadrupled down. Yeah, you you think he just doubled down? So he he, he uh, do you want to hear his comments? Have we actually yeah. heard his comments? No, let's hear these comments. Let me see the the cut sheet there, Ben. This is so Trump, you know, made a comment about ISIS, uh, well about the terrorist attacks and the Arab communities in New Jersey basically ended up saying that he remembers seeing right after 9/11 Certain areas in New Jersey, which are very Arab, uh, you know, centered or Arab, uh, large Arab population, celebrating the 9-11 collapse of buildings, looking out and cheering. Hit cut one there. I watched when the World Trade Center came tumbling down. And I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was... Coming down, thousands of people were cheering. Mm. So, no, but he said he watched. So, as if he were in New Jersey or watching the news, watching television right. coverage of this. Right. Okay. Now, no TV network covered it. Covered it, or has has video of this that they're saying. No newspaper said that they covered this or had any reports of this mm-hmm. happening. Then, And then he came up with a Washington Post. Play, uh, I think it's the third one. I have uh, the three down there. But fortunately, somebody in the Washington Post wrote that. They'll try and deny it. They'll probably say, well, we made a mistake, which I almost like that better. Then I could show you how dishonest they all are. I might like that better. Let them say that. But they'll find some reason to deny it. They'll call it a typo. So the article talked about a few people who were tailgating, yeah, watching as the towers fell. And they, uh, a, a website called The Daily Beast contacted the reporter who wrote the article, and they said that those were reports that they had heard other people kind of talking about, right. but they couldn't confirm them in the area. And the police have no reports of arrests or anything going right. on or breaking up any map. I wonder if like somebody like Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh had mentioned this. Maybe. Because this sounds like something that might be kind of fodder for their show. Could be. And maybe that – I don't know. But, or And maybe he was misinterpreted it. Maybe he saw it in another country. But so Ben Carson yeah. came out yesterday and saying, "Oh, I remember this too." Mm-hmm. But then later in the day, they walked it back, saying that he misremembered. I misremembered. Misremembered actually watching video from the Middle East where people yeah. were celebrating. And- but I, I think in the end, this is the the idea where it depends. If you love Trump, Trump just scored. Yes, because he threw the red meat out, and then all the media jumped on him, and then he proved the media wrong by using the media, in in their view. I mean, but, there was a Post report that allegedly saw, or whatever the, yeah. the 
allegation was. So he held up the paper that they printed this out on, mm-hmm. and then he then said, but you know the media lies. Well, and then what happened? So then point, then they go ask happen. the guy 11 years later or whatever it is. The reporter, yeah. That, the reporter, and and the reporter's like, I don't remember. Well, yeah. I don't remember. That. I mean, I, I, I wrote what I wrote, but I don't was, remember having seen it or interviewed anyone that saw it. Yeah, and, and definitely there was thousands of people. Right. There might have been a few because there's always a few people that do something. See, this is like – so it depends on what is is. It depends on what watch right. or I saw is. I mean this and, is – And in the end, this is just another mm-hmm. distraction yeah. to keep people from asking important questions about – Well, and this goes really to our, our first guest today, um, Julie Azari. Dr. Julia Azari is going to be joining us. And the whole topic is basically – you get this feeling that the Republican Party is in turmoil and is is sinking. But uh, there's been some really interesting articles that have come out of Vox.com. And uh, one of the ideas is simply, you know, uh, we got Hillary Clinton lined up, locked and loaded, ready to go. Except – and President Obama had, has had seven years. We've And the Republicans look to be floundering. Are the Republicans struggling? Are the Democrats really as strong as they seem – because check this crazy stat out. 70% of state legislatures are Republican. 60% of the governors in the United States are Republican. 55% of attorney generals are govern, are, are uh, Republican. The Republicans have a unified control over 25 states. The, it doesn't seem like they're weakening. No. In fact, many would argue they're actually pretty strong. And at the moment, they don't have the White House. They That's, just don't yeah. have the White House. They have both. Yeah, they have uh, the Senate. They have the legislature and a tossed equal supposed maybe more left-leaning now. With the Supreme Court. Supreme Court. There's more George Bush appointees on there than uh, any other president. But the argument is if the GOP ends up owning the states, the states are the ones that reapportion Senate seats, Congress, congressional seats, and eventually can turn – the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crazy stuff. We'll be talking to Dr. Julia Azari about really, are the Democrats in trouble or are they really as strong as they seem? But before we do that, let's get to the headlines. Anything going on around the world? There is. Thanks, Matt. The State Department issued a worldwide travel alert on Monday warning U.S. citizens about the risk of potential terrorist attacks. NBC's Pete Williams on the warnings. So Homeland Security's advice for people tonight here at home, travel, attend public events, celebrate the season, but be vigilant. Current information suggests that ISIL, ISIS, Daesh, Daesh, whatever name you want to use for them, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, and other terrorist groups continue to plan terrorist attacks in multiple regions. The statement reads, the alert is effective through February 24th. So... Be vigilant. Uh, on Monday night, two or three gunmen fired on protesters camped near the Minneapolis Police Department's 4th Precinct, hitting five. Minneapolis police said uh, just before midnight, none of the injuries are life-threatening, but three of the injured were taken to the hospital. A spokesman from the police department says a group of Black Lives Matter protesters have been camped outside the 4th Precinct in North Minneapolis since police shot Jamar Clark, who was black, on November 15th under contested circumstances that have prompted federal involvement in the case. So there is a, uh, a protest going on there. On Monday afternoon, Ben Carson took back comments that he made earlier in the day about seeing American Muslims celebrating the September 11, 2001 attacks in New Jersey. Dr. Carson does not stand by the statements that, that were uh, reported today. His communications director says he was hearing and thinking something differently at the time. He does, however, recall that he 
and had in his mind focus on the celebrations in the Middle East. He is not suggesting that American Muslims were in New Jersey celebrating the fall of the Twin Towers. Uh, this, in, of course, response to some of the comments we just heard. I from, know nothing. From, <laughs> he just uh, wants to stay out of Donald that. Donald Trump. Uh, speaking of Donald Trump, he appeared on Saturday Night Live earlier this month. Now NBC is going to have to give the same amount of airtime to other Republican primary candidates that wanted their own turn in the spotlight. The Hollywood Reporter and Variety are both reporting that NBC is giving 12 minutes and 5 seconds to each Mike Huckabee, John Kasich, James Gilmore, and Lindsey Graham during primetime on November 27th across 18 different NBC affiliate mm. stations in Iowa, South Carolina, and New Hampshire, as well as during the November 28th broadcast of Saturday Night Live. NBC must provide equal time for any opposing candidate that requires it according to FCC rules. Wow. So that, <laughs> that's the problem of having someone host Saturday Night Live that's running for president. Yeah. I mean, they, that's well, that's great for NBC because now they have 14 new hosts, right? <sighs> if they <laughs> want it, yeah. If they they've want all got to get in line. Interesting stuff. Well done. Well done, Terry. Uh, in a minute, we're going to take a break. We'll come right back and we'll be talking with Dr. Julia Azari. Are the Democrats doomed or dominant? It seems like they're dominant, right? President of the United States. Democrat. Hello. It's what we hear about all the time. The next... Uh, presidential, uh, you know, the next president of the United States, is it going to be Hillary Clinton? And if so, I guess they're dominant, right? Well, they seem, the Democrats seem to be struggling at the local level countrywide, and so we're going to be talking with an expert about what's really going on, what is the big deal, where is power really located, and uh, which party seems to be the most dominant. We'll find out. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Many political experts are questioning the future of the Democratic Party. And uh, with 70% of state legislatures, more than 60% of governors, 55% of attorneys general, and secretaries of state in Republican hands, the Republicans have unified control of 25 states. It is no wonder the power of the Democratic Party is in question. Today, joining us on the phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we have Dr. Julia Azari. She's here to talk to us about the state of Democratic Party and her recent article titled, The Democrats Are Doomed or Dominant? Yes, was her answer. Uh, Dr. Azari is Associate Professor and Assistant Chair in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. We welcome her to the show. Dr. Julia Azari, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Great to have you. What do you think? I mean, it seems like if I were just going to go by the news that, uh, you know, over the last couple months, uh, Democrats are doing really well. They've got the president of the United States is Democrat. They've got uh, Secretary uh, Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, that's running. Seems like an incredibly strong candidate. Then the Republicans seem seem to be coming, you know. They seem to be coming apart at the seams, not necessarily presenting a unified front. They can't seem to get anything done in Congress. But why is it that the states are so strong, Republican, but the the president and, and the Democratic Party seems so strong at a national level? 
Um, yeah, so that's a great question. I think that there's um, the best way to answer that is that the, a political party is really two things. Um, it's an organization and it's a set of ideas. And I think that where the Democrats are strong is that they're, they're about to hit a good point in the national cycle of ideas. Hmm. We've been in, in a cycle since about 1980 where more conservative ideas have been dominant, where Ronald Reagan became president and there was a kind of resurgence around not just the Republican Party as a party, but a kind of set of ideas about personal responsibility and small government. And so that was a really energizing set of ideas in the 1980s. Um, and, you know, similarly to what happens whenever a party comes into dominance over a period of about 40 years, that kind of fades away. People get ready for new ideas. I think we're really seeing that nationally um, that I think particularly telling actually is the rhetoric in the Republican debates where, well, the candidates have a lot of extremely conservative ideas. We're seeing income inequality emerge as a mm. theme, and I think that shows the Democrats are starting to kind of set the terms of debate. So nationally, they're in a they're just in a good place in terms of the cycle of ideas. And like you said, that there's some pretty strong politicians nationally who can articulate that. Um, the parties are also organizations, and that is where the Republicans have done really well, not just over the last 40 years, but over about the last 80, mm. um, in building up party organizational structure. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really striking about the two presidential fields is that while the Republican one is, like you said, is a little chaotic, it's also evidence of really strong recruiting. Um, and they have a much stronger bench of people, say, in their 40s. Um, whereas the, the Democrats, um, you know, have a lot of people from the baby boomer generation, and they don't have as strong a team of um, people who are kind of generationally like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. Right. So it's, you know, I think that what's really, you know, what it is is that the parties are multifaceted um, organizations in, in American politics, and so the parties have been strong in different ways. That's That's fascinating because – um, so they they are doomed. The Democrats would be doomed organizationally, but uh, booming when it comes to the, their ideas structure and their cycle of ideas. The Republicans lack tend to lack more ideas, but have such a strong structure that's even down to the state level. But that that's also feeding up all of these potential candidates and and this great bench. In a weird way, it seems like overall. Uh, we might as a country be just struggling because um, we've got great candidates with ideas that can't push them through the organization of the other party. Yeah, I think that there's there's an element of that. I mean, I think the other component of this that I didn't really touch on in that piece, but I've, I've written about yeah. at other times is, is the feeling of polarization um, and particularly this kind of feeling of mistrust across the parties. I think really that regardless of your partisan affiliation, democracy is healthiest when um, when people are sort of agree on what the main problems are and are approaching them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of, you know, one of three outcomes I can see if this continues where the Democrats kind of control the presidency and the national political agenda and then the, the Republicans 
control the states. One possibility is that everyone kind of gets on the same page about income inequality and about questions of national security, which have shifted since I wrote that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, everyone kind of gets on the same page and then we argue about how to do it. Um, well, I think when we're arguing about whether we can trust each other, when we're arguing about who's an American, um, you know, when we're arguing about moral issues in the political arena, that kind of is a recipe for for distrust. Mm. Yeah. I mean, because then all of a sudden we're not even we're not even near the same page. And, and then we're just name calling or I mean, if you have to get on the same moral page, it yeah. seems like we've got a pretty big chasm to cross. Yeah, I you know, I think that's right. And um, I think there's a couple of different, um, you know, there's a couple of different strains that feed into that. And one is the emergence of um, of secularism and religiosity as a major division between the parties. And that is a relatively recent development um, since the 1970s. I think that's, you know, that's really a challenge because I think that it, on the one hand, it's very true that people have different beliefs on either side of that divide. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's a fair amount of evidence that non-religious people, you know, have very similar um, moral ideas. Yeah, to values, yeah. People. Uh, right, that we all sort of agree on living in a in a just and non-violent society, and that that's something people can work work toward across different lines. So I think that, you know, I hate to say that the divisions of our political system are artificial, because I don't think that they're artificial, but I don't think they're as insurmountable as our current political climate would suggest. Yeah, maybe. It, is it just the language? Is it the hyping that we're doing? Is it just... Is it is it just the networks that seem to polarize us so much more? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I'm um, kind of trying to work on this right now, and it's really hard to tease this all out. Yeah, um, I bet. <laughs> I mean, I really yeah, I mean, because it, where it depends. Yeah, where do you get your data? And uh, yeah, I, I think that's the, like. Luckily, you're the professor. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a challenge. Um, I think that one of the things to emphasize is that there are things that are often. Um, that we often seek to blame, and that you know those are um, those are playing a role, but they're not the only thing. Mm-hmm. So generally, people blame um, the media, yeah. And I think there's there's certainly a media story there, and the media has shifted somewhat since the middle of the 20th century. Um, but I also think that probably some of the partisan media wouldn't be as powerful as it is if if people didn't have underlying sentiments of distrust. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that um, one of the things that drives it for me, or at least that I sort of see as, as driving it, um, is people feeling having a sense of, of threat to their identity. Mm. Um, and I think that this is combined with the stakes being high. And part of that, some political science research suggests that it's um, it's how competitive politics are right now. Um, and that, for example, the um, party control of the national legislature of Congress has switched fairly frequently. Um, in presidential elections, if you compare our presidential elections to like the middle of the 20th century, um, we tend to have closer elections. And so those stakes are high. That gives 
national politicians an incentive to really shoot down the other party. Right. Um, and as the economy has gotten worse, that also raises the stakes for people, right? People yeah. feel very concerned about their well-being. And that makes makes people um, act threatened in, you know, in all sorts of ways. I think it brings out the salience of racial issues as well. And just, you know, it really um, sets the ground conditions for um for very contentious electoral politics. Well, and then if it's contentious and it's close, then, and for example, members of the GOP or followers of the GOP lose two elections to Obama and then they kind of fester for right. for, for eight years. And, uh, you know, as Democrats festered for eight years under the Bush um, presidency. So it seems like there's a lot of festering and not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, having yeah. And then like, I like that. I think there's a lot to the threat to the identity, and, and and then the rigidity of it all. Then we kind of all break into our our rigidity, and that's I know that's one of the things that uh, you were responding to in your Vox article uh, when you were responding to the other article written by Matthew Iglesias, just about he talked a lot about the rigidity of the parties, and um, mm-hmm. it's almost like the, the less rigid party is probably going to win this. Or I mean, or like mm-hmm. take a stronger lead because, you know, if if the Republicans are great in organization, but they could open up more ideas um, that are even seen as democratic ideas historically, and actually use their organization to create buy-in, it could be powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's right. But the thing that I think has really been kind of a, a gobsmack to a lot of political scientists and a lot of other commentators is that. Evolution of, or the sort of recent emergence, actually, of this um, politics around party discipline and ideological purity. And there's some really interesting research out there that actually shows if you ask Democrats and Republicans what's more important, compromise or ideological purity, there's a big difference. Um, these are just people in the electorate. Republicans tend to value ideological purity, and Democrats tend to value compromise. Mm. Um, some research by um, by Dave Hopkins and Matt Grossman, two other political scientists. Um, you know, the, that, the emergence of that, like, I'm not really sure, they're not really sure. I've pressed them on the causes of this, um, and they're kind of still teasing out what the picture looks like. But, I, um, you know, it, there are questions about, does this come from the nature of the ideology? Does this come from the elites? Um, hmm. what, is the, what is the nature of this? But I think that that's where... Um, the Republican Party is going to run into trouble is this idea that you can't deviate from certain ideological, um, I, you know, ideas or principles. We kind right. of saw that with stuff like the debt ceiling debate, um, where you have this caucus in Congress that just is very inflexible and very conservative leaders like, you know, John Boehner when he was Speaker and Paul Ryan, um, are still kind of taking this this idea of, well, you, you've got to be practical. Um, and certainly, you know, the Ronald Reagan, the major um, mouthpiece of this ideology was still, was practical, compromised, yeah. um, you know, agree or disagree with his Well, I mean, political that, that's the perfect example of kind of rigid ideology is we, everyone keeps invoking Reagan. Right. Reagan mm-hmm. economics, Reagan's, this is Reaganism. And, and it's, that is true. I don't seem to hear that type of, you know, uh, rigid connection to ideology as much in the Democratic Party. 
It's right. it's more it's just more pushing of ideas. Um, let's do this, Julia. Let's take a break. Come back. I want to I want to continue the discussion and and figure out like what what is the impact, for example, long term of having the Republicans organizing really well, um, but mm-hmm. kind of a dearth maybe of 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 ideas. Um, and, and do you see any hope of of this? ever coming together? Are the systems ever going to push us together? We're speaking with Dr. Julia Azari from Marquette University um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're going to be back. She's the author of the the article, Are Democrats Doomed or Dominant? Yes, was her answer, by the way. Uh, And it was a reply on Vox.com to another article about uh, Democrats. And maybe they're losing or not as strong as as they may seem. And uh, maybe the Republicans aren't as weak as they may seem. Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. The Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about the future of actually both parties, the Democratic and the Republican Party. Are they doomed or are they thriving? It, it kind of depends where you're looking. If you're looking at the national level, you you may just feel like the Democrats have it cornered. They've had eight years or so in the presidential uh, office and yet have lost both you know, the Senate and the Congress. To the, to the Republicans. Meanwhile, though, this, on the state level, the Republicans are so well organized, they tend to be, you know, grabbing a large share um, and a disproportionate share uh, at the state level. And yet Democrats bring the ideas. Republicans bring the organization. How do we ever get these two to work together? Joining us is Dr. Julia um, Azari. Dr. Azari is a professor, associate professor and assistant chair in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. Her research and teaching interests include the American presidency, American political parties, and the politics of the American state and uh, qualitative research methods. She also um, wrote an article that uh, – this is how we found her. It's a wonderful article called Democrats Doomed or Dominant? The answer, yes. And uh, she was responding to another article on Vox.com. Democrats are in denial. Their party is actually in deep trouble. Dr. Julia Azari, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. What do you think? I mean, it seems like um, the power is – and I think we underestimate maybe – we always see the power in the president but and in the presidency – but there's a lot of important things going on at the state level that uh, that will eventually affect the national level, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the things that uh, we see at the state level is just that's where a lot more of the kind of day-to-day policy that affects people's lives is made. It takes a long time, um, particularly for some of these big social issue type policies, to um, get anywhere on the national stage. So if you think about a lot of the fight over – um, marriage equality mm-hmm. over um, all of those kinds of questions and ongoing fights about abortion. All of that's happening um, largely at the state level um, with the national government being pretty reactive. Yeah. Yeah, kind of um, waiting for it to, to fester up 
and then right. go to court and then then we deal with it. Right. And part of that is, um, and it's not entirely that, but part of that is also that um, the national is divided government and um, and divisions even within the parties and in Congress um, and make it more difficult for um, the net for policy issues to come up at the national level. But part of that also is, like you said, the court process. But um, the other thing, though, is that even when, when something gets passed, and so this is one of the possibilities that I threw out in the piece, is even when Congress and the president work together and they pass major pieces of legislation, president signs it, um, it has to go into effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that often goes, when that has to do with, like, the Affordable Care Act, and that has to do with the delivery of some kind of, of um, you know, government um, intervention and service yeah. provision, that tends to go to the state, right? All of our, um, all of our social safety net programs pretty much, um, and I shouldn't say all, but the medical ones in particular have a state component, right? The cooperative right. federalism. So... Um, that, you know, that gives the states an opportunity to participate or not, or do what, do what they will, um, in terms of the enforcement. Um, we also see a growth in coordinated lawsuits by states, Mm -hmm. um, against the federal government. One of my colleagues, Paul Nolette has written about that. Um, so I think that one of the things is if we end up seeing an, another round of unified democratic government at the national level is we'll see a lot more stuff like the Affordable Care Act, where we get big legislation and then lots of fights in terms of its its implementation. Hmm. I mean, yeah, and more like mandates, more, uh, what do they call them, from the president where he just signs his own, you know, mm-hmm. mandate. But it, it seems like executive a really – Yeah, executive orders that will be handed down. One of the things that you also brought up that seems really powerful to me would be why doesn't the president come down with to the states more and work with like minded governors and try to push some ideas um, through the state level, almost empowering the states more to um, cooperate with the president he doesn't seem in this case just with a democratic uh, president trying to work with two two uh <laughs> two branches of um of govern or uh, the legislative branch and they're not mm-hmm. able to get their ideas across and there's a lot of stalemates can't the president come down and work more just state by state sell the ideas mm-hmm. with the with the governors question. I mean, part of that has to do with the fact that there are a lot of Republican governors now that, you know, a lot of whom were elected in these Republican waves that are anti-Obama. Right. So, so we're not going to see a lot of that. Um, in terms of working with Democratic or maybe even more moderate Republican governors, I think you see that sometimes. I think we also still have a norm, though, where the president sticks to national level stuff and doesn't get involved in the state um legislative process Mm -hmm. so there's you know i think that one of the things to keep in mind is that we still have pretty strong norms around federalism in certain ways and we still have a very decentralized system compared to a lot of advanced industrial countries and you know obama's had um you know he's he's had a lot to deal with um (laughs) in both of his terms and so i think that there's also a danger in the optics of the presidency getting too involved on and the ground, you know, on whatever their, you know, policy they're trying to pass in Vermont. Right. Um, 
he's supposed to be the leader of the nation. He's dealing with some pretty serious crises throughout the world. Um, and so I think that that level of, of state national cooperation is probably not is not something we're likely to see. So it really is – it's kind of more like the legislation we saw with the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act may be more of the norm where it just has to be kind of pushed through, uh, forced through, whatever, finagled through and then mm-hmm. take it to court state by state. Yeah, I mean I think that that's entirely possible. Although I think – you know, I'm not sure that – um, that the ACA was so unusual in either being forced or finagled. It okay. Was, you know, it took a long time. Yeah. Finagling is just kind of how legislation goes. Right. That's true. And and then in the end, but I guess then in the end, the buy-in just comes led, or uh, more judicially. You're just – every state's going to buy into it as, as either cases mm-hmm. agree with their arguments or not. And um, so when when it comes down to it, do you sense – like you gave an example in um, in your article about the fact that perhaps state level Republicans will respond as opposition parties often have. But for example, you gave an ex- an example of the Utah, which is a con- fairly conservative state, but they have some pretty you know cutting edge programs to end poverty and homelessness, which does jive with you know a national um, kind of more liberal or democratic agenda. And so there could be a, yeah. a, par- a, a partnership between certain state ideas uh, or certain, you know, even conservative uh, government I- ideas that actually still might be able to be worked, you know, with a more democratic or, or liberal agenda. I think that that's a, that's a possibility, and I also think that some state level um, Republicans have, you know, they have less of an incentive to um, to to design their whole political identity around opposing the president. I mean, it's also worth mentioning that Obama won't be president for them. Right. Um, so who knows what will happen after that. Um, but he, um, I think that, yeah, there, there will be state-level Republicans who don't have the same incentive to uh, be competitive on the national stage. You'll have governors who maybe don't have presidential aspirations, members of state legislatures who really do have they have a conservative orientation, but maybe can see that, you know, can agree on some of the same problems. Yeah. And like I said, I really see a shift in the Republican Party's um, discourse around income inequality in those in these last couple of debates where I feel like this is becoming such a pressing and salient problem. Everyone's going to have to buy in and stuff like you mentioned, you know, homelessness, which is which is part of the inequality picture. Right. Um, you know, you're starting to get some conservative arguments for what have typically been liberal social ideas like LGBT rights, um, kind of from the more libertarian wing of the party. I think that these are these are ideas people can come together on um, some sense of ending ending suffering and banning discrimination, mm-hmm. um, and those things can really be you know can really benefit from having ideas that come from different ideological places. Um, and I do actually think that that's where the states, um, where they can experiment with policy, they can pilot smaller programs, and they're not constantly involved in this national symbolic battle. Um, there's tremendous potential there. So I'm, I'm cautiously hmm. optimistic about the possibilities going forward. What what can the rest of us do, Julia? Just the average voter who's kind of watching the, these races 
um, maybe maybe does you know like a lot of the ideas of one party, um, but but also is kind of tired of just the standoff. Is there anything we can do as a voter that matters to the process? So I think that one of the big things that we can we can do as voters um, is to be civically alive, um, and this means not only to be paying attention to what's happening in public policy, um, which often is beyond the, the big bombastic congressional debate, right? Um, but actually in the implementation. But also when I when I say being civically alive, I mean being attuned to our fellow citizens. Um, and to be skeptical of anything that distrusts or attributes um, bad motives to people, to other ordinary citizens who affiliate with the opposite party. Mm. Um, and I think this is much easier said than done. We're, we're not all very, you know, very good at it. I'm not always very good at it. But I think that there's, um, there's something to be said about um, really trying to, trying to think about developing trust, if not for government and politicians who you know, may or may not deserve it, for your fellow citizens and to think of, of yourself as being part of a, a larger civic body. I yeah. think that's um, the first step. So it's not very concrete, but I think... No, no, I think that's powerful, though. I mean, instead of just f- taking on an ideology that you've heard, maybe open up your mind and, like, what does income inequality mean? What's it like to be the working single mom that that is killing herself to work and isn't making minimum wage. Right. I mean, and just understand it. Just attune ourselves to it. I mean, that might, that helps everybody. It doesn't, it just, it just helps you understand what the issues really are. Instead of carrying the banner. I think, yeah, that would be my, um, the, the thing that based on my, my training, I would say would would be helpful that people can do is yeah to try and find empathy, empathy and civic identity. Hmm. I love it. That's it's simple. It's simple enough for all of us. Uh, Julia Azari, we appreciate you and your great work there at Marquette. Keep it up. Keep up the great writing, and please go figure out why we're so polarized. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Try. Take care. Good work. Okay, we appreciate Thanks. it. Uh, interesting stuff, isn't that great? When you think about it, man. How many times do you just rigidly go with the ideology instead of actually feeling it, instead of actually knowing and empathizing with what's going on, being civically alive? That's Julia's suggestion to all of us. Actually attune ourselves to our fellow citizens. Give them, you know, attribute good intent, not just they're out trying to suck the life out of you. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. Come back. Wrap this first hour up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's a it's an interesting little dilemma when you think that um, locally, again, seventy percent of state legislatures are conservative, are GOP, are are Republican. Sixty percent of the governor's offices are held by Republicans. So, it's a it's a big deal. And why it's a big deal, because also these are the ones that eventually, you know, line up, 
you know, your congressional seats. They're the ones that realign uh, how you're going to when you get a new seat for Congress. It will be the state legislatures that create it, which is why the uh, the GOP has such a stronghold on Congress. And yet nothing seems to be happening. So we have these separate, you know, separate organizations. You got the you've got the the presidency. You've got Congress. You've got the judicial branch, three different branches, all with different goals and uh, all, by the way, with power. And then all of a sudden decisions are now being made by fiat, some believe, or by congressional or by judicial decisions. Judicial arguments are making up legislation? What? But part of the dilemma is we're not talking. We're not getting connection. And you can complain about it all you want, but part of the thing eventually we're going to have to change is apparently Democrats are going to have to either get more organized at a state level or Republicans are going to have to grow some real ideas. Some ideas that actually resonate with millennials, some ideas that resonate with immigrants and immigration, some ideas that are maybe a little less, you know, harsh ideology and it can show some compassion. Or we just stay in the stalemate. And eventually, I guess someone will win the race, I guess, somewhere. But I don't know who wins the race, the party of ideas or the party of organization. Wouldn't it be great to have both? And maybe the one that the ones that need to break out are some of these younger leaders, which apparently abound uh, in the GOP because they've got such deep benches. But some of those younger leaders, maybe in the GOP, you might want to go start borrowing from the book of the Democrats and get some of their ideas and find a way to make it work in your ideology. And bada boom, bada bing, we've just solved some problems. We're already seeing it, like uh, Dr. Azari was bringing up, when we just think of uh, income inequality. I mean, we're eventually going to have to deal with immigration. And I'm telling you, borrow some of the ideas and find a way that a democratic idea can jive with a GOP ideology or vice versa. And you're going to have something powerful happening. There's a reason why Donald Trump can just spew this strong, rigid ideology. It's because there's so many that love that. And, you know, eventually, too, we need to have compassion. And as uh, our guest suggested earlier, we eventually also have to have some kind of civic. uh, We have to be alive civically and, and actually care about the people around us. Interesting stuff, folks. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you get the tools you need to uh, lead your life to at least figure out who you're going to be voting for someday. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. More ideas, more tools next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Good morning, kids. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we do what we can to give you uh, the information you need to grow healthier, happier lives. Today, in just a few minutes, we'll be talking about yams. we got to get it out now. Yeah. This is breaking news. Um, we, we also have got to talk about today is celebrate your unique talent day. Hmm. So, Ben, what exactly Uh-oh. is your unique talent? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, you know what? We'll get back to you on so that. So it's ben. timing. Timing is yeah, your talent. Timing is okay, definitely not good. his talent. Do you know how you you know how you kill a rare animal? How? You unique up on it. That's not funny. And then you anyway. That's a dad um, that's a dad joke. <laughs> total dad good joke. Good job with that. Thank though. you very much. That's, that's one of talent. my unique talents. Dad, dad jokes. jokes. Real groaners. <laughs> In fact, oh. I'm going to be giving you some dad jokes later on. That is a unique talent. Now we call them granddad jokes mm-hmm. because I'm a grandpa. You've advanced in your, your stature. It's really weird because uh, I used to think grandpas were old. And now that I am one, I don't feel like grandpas are as old as they used to be. You'll you be know? remembered as being old, though. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I'll be remembered as being old because when I die and they no longer have me here, I will be old. Yeah, and that's or how I'll remember be young you. and I will have died very young. <laughs> but which is just tragic. Hey, um, today's also DB Cooper Day. On November twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one, an unidentified man who hijacked a Boeing seven twenty seven aircraft in airspace between Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington. He ended up he had he had basically extorted two hundred thousand dollars in ransom, which is about one point one million dollar in today's day, today's money. Um, and then the guy jumps out of the airplane, disappeared. DB Cooper over forest, over the forest, and they weren't able to find him or any trace of. You know, he's probably just dead with a pile of money, or or he survived. He's in Guam. Or as one TV show I watched about four years ago put it, he buried it in Tooele, Utah. Yes. And now there's a, I, hu- now there's a housing development prison on Prison break. Yeah, is that prison what, break, yeah. That was a great show. In fact, Tooele of all places. Yeah. Because that's where I grew up as a kid. I'd go there for in the summers because my mom would be tired of me and send me out to live with relatives in the summer. That's where I learned to drown. You learned to drown. Mm-hmm. They okay. called it swim lessons. Yeah. But the guy would just throw us in the pool. I, t- I took those when I was a kid too. But he was more like – he was of the theory that eh, you'll learn to swim yeah. you, or you'll die. just turns into drowning lessons. Oh, I hated that. Yeah. But that's where I also realized that you can fill your lungs with water. <laughs> and you're, and it's actually a very pleasant, warm feeling <laughs> until you die. Hey, uh, we heard that the Turkish you know, fighter planes shot, shot down a Russian jet. Yes. Maybe if we want to get ISIS, we shouldn't have Putin do it. Why not? Because Remember, Putin, he, he's the one that said, I'm not the one to judge. I'm the one to send them to God. Well, so he could point. judge them, right? By the way, which I think is a fascinating point that Putin believes in God. Oh, yeah. He's a religious guy. And he's not going to judge these people. He's just going to send them to God and let God do the judging. Yeah. But Putin's getting in trouble there. Um, the Turks are now in trouble. Turkish people are now in trouble because they've shot down Putin's planes. ISIS continues on the move. You know who we need? We need the Sicilian mafia. Yes. According to um, – <laughs> this is crazy. 
The son of New York mob boss has given the Islamic State a stark warning, saying if you're planning any attacks in New York, you're going to have to contend with the Sicilian mafia. This is crazy. There you go. He's coming out as like, A, we are the mafia. He's a Gambino. The notorious syndicate, crime syndicate uh, family member Giovanni Gambino, the son of the key figure in the Gambino mob, or, mob or organization, says that the mafia is in a much better position than the security bodies, such as the FBI or Homeland Security, to protect New Yorkers and give them the protection they need. I think the mafia protected the <clears throat> the New York Bay during World War Two too. Did they? Oh, mm-hmm. uh, you mess with you're gonna mess with my people. You're going to mess with me. Like the government hired them to do Did that. Did they really? This is exciting. So apparently, according to Gambino, the, he believes these uh, these agencies, they often act too late or they fail to see the complete picture of what's happening due to a lack of human intelligence. According to the, an interview with the NBC News, the world is a dangerous place today, but people living in New York neighborhoods with Sicilian connections should feel safe. We got you. We got you. We got you covered. We make sure our friends and family are protected from extremists and terrorists, especially the brutal psychopathic organization that calls itself the Islamic State. Mm. So what do you think? The mafia? Mafia. Are they the solution, at least stateside? It's not Putin. No. It's not China. It's not France. It's the Gambino brothers. No one's attacking Sicily. Absolutely. Sicily's safe. <laughs> Sicily, you're safe with us. This is crazy. Wouldn't that be fascinating? What if they really were more protected by the mafia? The enemy of your enemy is your friend. Yeah. In so certain now, situations, absolutely. And if we're going to protect New York, we need you to back off. We need the federal government to back off. You need to leave us alone and let us do our stuff. Can you imagine? Oh, this is just crazy. The world we live in. Uh, Any other headlines around the country or the world that we need to be focusing on, Terry? Yes, there are. Uh, Donald Trump demanded an apology from people who noted there is zero evidence that thousands of people in New Jersey were cheering at the destruction of the World Trade Center September 11th, 2001. Trump made that claim on ABC News this week. On Sunday, no video or other proof of what Trump claims has surfaced. However, in a phone call to NBC News Monday afternoon, Trump said, I have the world's greatest memory, he says. It's one thing everyone agrees on. On Monday, Trump tweeted a Washington Post article from September 18, 2001 that said, in part, authorities detained and questioned a number of people who were allegedly seen celebrating the attacks and holding tailgate-style parties on rooftops while they watched the devastation on the other side of the river. Here's more from Trump. And they checked and they checked. And believe me, it's being cleared off plenty of stuff. They don't like that because that's not good for the liberal cause, right? But they don't like it. And lo and behold, I start getting phone calls in my office by the hundreds that they were there and they saw this take place. So it continues on. One of the reporters that wrote the article, Serge Kovaleski, said, I do not recall anyone saying there were thousands or even hundreds of people celebrating. Other Republican candidates reject Trump's claim, including Marco Rubio, who said it's not true. There's plenty of fact checks to prove that it isn't. He said that to CNN. Hold on. Yeah. He's got phone calls. And, And memory. He says he has the greatest memory. It's one thing everyone agrees on. Yeah. And and there is one report in the post. One. Yeah. He's got he's got it. You know, what? this is where you need to send the Gambino family. Uh, the Gawker Media 
will uh, their website Gawker will pay for a copy of the video if anyone has it. They'd like to see the video because apparently Trump watched the video. Oh yeah. So upwards around maybe five thousand dollars in it for you if you have a copy of the video Trump saw. <laughs> Do you know how many people are going to be sending in tailgating videos now? Yeah, just at some <laughs> football game. Hey. Oh boy. A white a white Chicago police officer caught on the dashboard camera footage fatally shooting a black teenager was expected to face a first degree murder charge today. Several media outlets are reporting the footage which the city is preparing to release Wednesday purportedly shows officer Jason Van Dyke shooting a 17-year-old uh, Laquan McDonald 16 times. This is back in October of 2014. Van Dyke allegedly kept firing after the teen fell to the ground. The lawyers for McDonald's family said Mayor Rahm Emanuel of Chicago on Monday met with the community leaders and uh, warning of possible protests following the court order release of the video. So they're trying hmm. to manage as this video gets released. It's going to get ugly. Yeah. Public reaction. A U.S. Army has said that four crew members died Monday when a military helicopter crashed at Fort Hood in Texas. The members of the Division West 1st Army were on a routine training mission flying a UH-60 chopper at the time of the crash. The Army said in a statement the cause of the crash still under investigation, and the Army said it would not release the names of the victims until 24 hours after the next of kin have been notified. Hmm, In other news, Maine health officials propose a ban Monday that would prevent people from using food stamps to buy candy and soda. The U.S. Department of Agriculture will have to have the final say on the federal aid program's restrictions in Maine, a state where about 28 percent of the people are obese, according to 2014 self-reported data. Uh, Federal rules allow the purchase of soda, candy, and other junk food with food stamps, but not tobacco or alcohol. So what do you think? Will that fly? Will they be able to restrict food stamps and what you can buy with them? Sure. (laughs) Sure. Because that's the answer. People do whenever they've tried to do something like that. There's a huge backlash. Sorry, son. I know what you would most love to have today, because you get a treat once a month is some candy. But Mama can't do it because the federal government won't let Mama do that. I mean, oh man, it seems a bit of an overreach. There's just other problems, and there's other reasons why. I mean, half of these food stamps are probably being spent at local, you know. Stores, not necessarily, not necessarily shopping centers to get groceries. Right, they're being spent at like a gas station. Yeah. So, part of the problems may simply be there's not great shopping opportunities in some of these inner cities where a lot of these things are being used. It's we're focusing on the wrong thing. We always yeah. focus on the wrong thing, man. Which is the problem, right? Got a great guest coming up. Josh Davis is going to be joining us. Josh is uh, Dr. Josh Davis is the author of Two Awesome Hours, Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done. What if I told you, according to research, you just need two hours? And if in two hours you can get done what needs to be done, change your life forever. Two hours that are optimal in life. We're going to be talking about it. What are the hours? What should we be doing in those time frames? In that time frame, what what is the answer? Uh, it's not just about doing more, folks. It might simply be about identifying the two awesome hours and get so much more done. Oh, wouldn't it be great? We'll take a break. Dr. Josh Davis will be with us next, helping us get our most important work done. That's the goal of the show. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Hey folks, welcome back. Hey, is your to-do list about a mile high? Usually the solution to get everything done is to become more efficient, right? To make some sacrifices. Do you sacrifice your sleep, your exercise, your healthy eating in order to get things done? According to our next guest, Dr. Josh Davis, is he's the author of Two Awesome Hours, Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done. Trying to do more in less time is not the best way to tackle our to-do list. He joins us now via the phone from New York to tell us uh, more. Dr. Davis, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. You bet. Great to have you. And this, uh, I, I love the idea of this book. A, it's science-backed. Uh, you've done a lot of research in your work at Columbia University. Uh, you've also been at New York University, at Barnard College of Columbia University. Talk to us about what you've been learning um, when it comes to, you know, how we how we manage our time, how we manage our life. Well, you know, some of the things that I was learning, uh, really, they, there were, I, they took me a while to, to realize just what I, was, what I had in front of me. So uh, what I set out to do was to tackle this challenge that you spelled out perfectly, that everyone's got a to-do list that's just, it has more on it than we could possibly complete. And that's just the case for everyone now. And it's because we're so accessible. You know, it's because we have all of these great ways to work anytime, anywhere. So our to-do list just keep piling up because we can we can ask for things from each other all the time. And we reward each other for it by getting back to one another quickly and at any time of the day. So, But that's the state of things now. And it was getting to a point where, for me, it was totally untenable for my wife, you know, for my friends, and, and just seeing people working around the clock, doing good work, and feeling bad about themselves at the end of the, end of the day. Yeah. Like it was never enough. Like They were never good enough. And what I started to notice, though, was that there are certain times when we can be remarkably productive, where you could figure out how to map out a chapter, you could figure out who needs to be on your team for a project, you could figure out, you know, the plan for the radio show for, you know, the whole quarter. There, there You could have an hour, two hours where you're just really, really nailing it, yeah. you know, hitting it out of the park. And then, I don't know about you, but I can be worthless for two days on end. You know, oh, yeah. Kind of getting nowhere. Two days? <laughs> Come on, Josh. <laughs> right. Stretch yourself. So, so what I what I turned my mind towards was, you know, if there are these times that happen organically where we really can be at our best, then there must be conditions that set those up. Hmm. And that's when I turned towards the scientific literature, which is more my bread and butter, the neuroscience and the psychology research about what are those conditions that really set us up to be at our peak, to really be focused, to be in those moments when we're highly productive. And it turns out that, you know, the biggest picture message, I think, is that the same things that help us set up those conditions also end up leading to more work-life balance, not less. Hmm. So, so it really, it, it actually becomes uh, a multiplier. It, it makes it more and more effective for you just by learning some of the basic principles. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, wow. Yeah. So, so give us an example of... Give us an example of what works in the two hours that, that you learned. What's some of the neuroscience teaching us? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, I think, most important things to learn first is that we're operating on autopilot most of the day. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that the more experienced we get, actually, the more experts. 
expert we get at things in our life, the more we don't need our conscious resources to pay attention to guide us. And so we can operate very automatically. It's not that you're not conscious, but you don't need to be monitoring a lot. So, for example, even this conversation right now, you and I are at the point in our lives where there's a lot we don't really need to keep track of, and don't, I don't need to be thinking about how I'm going to formulate each word mm. and how I'm going to put together a sentence, and I don't need to keep track of, you know, once I'm in conversation mode, I'm not thinking about the rest of my day either. We can be here really paying attention to one another, mm. and we're in interview mode. And later on, I'll be in meeting mode, and I'll be, uh, you know, in presentation mode at different times. I'll be in writing mode at certain points of the day. And, and once we get into these modes, we just kind of we start going mostly on autopilot until, and this is the thing, and this is because it helps us conserve energy. It helps us conserve the conscious resources we have to do that. But there's a certain point when autopilot fails, when we come to a crossroads where autopilot just can't guide us no matter how much we want it to. So, And it's something like this. Maybe I'm... Uh, here talking with you on the phone, and let's say somebody walks in the door who I'm not expecting and calls my name, all of a sudden, autopilot can't handle that. I need to bring online conscious resources that didn't need to be there before to pay attention to that and help me make a choice. Hmm. And it's only in those very few moments in the day when autopilot kind of fails us that we're really stepping into a place where we can be much more deliberate about what we choose to do. So, so recognizing that way in which the brain works can, I think, really put a lot of emphasis on the importance of capturing those brief, what I call, decision points in the day mm. and learning to really use them, learning to spot them when they happen and learning to create more of them so that you can actually choose what to work on uh, rather than just you know, getting lost on autopilot. Oh, how many times does that happen where you just, you know, you go back to your desk and then you either are reacting to what others are bringing you, um, but you're not actually intentionally seeing it as a choice. Like, okay, now I'm going to focus on this. And and you're saying that's a key moment that you call that a decision point. That's exactly right. And those decision points, those are golden. I mean, they, they might happen, let's say you gave a perfect example. You go back to your desk, you sit down, you flip open the computer, and there's a bunch of emails there. It's very tempting to react. It's very natural to react. You can get lost on autopilot so easily and be gone for an hour, just kind of responding one after another. Yeah. So there's a critical moment, though, right before you've actually started responding, started reading the emails, when it isn't exactly clear what task you're doing. And so you have more of those conscious resources dedicated to actually deciding what to work on. And time doesn't get wasted in that moment. That moment feels like you're wasting time, you feel unproductive, but it's really only a minute or two. Yeah. So we're so aware of everything in that moment that we're aware of how unproductive we feel. Time gets wasted when you choose the wrong task and you start going on autopilot for an hour. Time doesn't get wasted in those moments. So right before you start work, as soon as you sit down at your desk, that's a perfect time to recognize something special is about to happen. You can think more clearly and consciously about what to work on in that moment than you can in the next hour. Mm. So you really got to start to learn to use that moment, step back for a couple of minutes until you can remember what's actually important for the day and choose what to do intelligently. It seems like your brain would prefer the autopilot, non-conscious you know, uh, pattern instead of 
the task because to become real about it and focused on it means um, I guess I'm going to exert more energy, but it also means I'm going to end up doing something that's just a lot more effective for this moment. So I'm going to get results, but why is it that we are so naturally just drawn to not to just go to the autopilot? Well, there's a term that I love that was coined, I think, in the 1990s by um, Shelley Taylor, which is uh, that we are cognitive misers. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> the idea is we will expend as little mental energy as we can. Um, and there are evolutionary reasons that have been put forth for that. There are arguments that have been made, and we may never know exactly the reason why, but it certainly makes sense that if you think about how our conscious resources work, we can really only hold one thing in conscious awareness at a time. Hmm. And, uh, but we can be aware of, who knows, thousands, maybe millions of different data points non-consciously at the same time. And so we can sort of figure out in a, you know, basically just kind of figuring out patterns, recognizing patterns and going along with that without using much in the way of conscious deliberate thinking. And so that can free up our conscious thinking for special occasions when it's really needed. This is these conscious resources rely heavily on parts of the brain that are uniquely human, that you don't see um, in nearly the same proportions in other animals. Um, in Only in our closest relatives do you see anything that's even approximating, starting to get towards it. So, you know, it suggests that there's a... Um, a special set of abilities that have to do with consciously, deliberately thinking through things so that we can counteract whatever we're seeing, so that we can logically talk ourselves out of just following a pattern hmm. that have evolved. Um, and, uh, and that these resources, because we can only focus on one thing at a time consciously, that uh, it's really not so adaptive when you need to be responding quickly. Um, it's not so adaptive when you have many thousands of things to be keeping track of, like, you know, who, where everybody sits in the social hierarchy, and, you know, how to take steps without falling, and how to put together a sentence when the sounds that you can make with your voice don't produce enough information to really communicate. So these right. are some of the challenges that we have. It, it seems like the, it's, it's being conscious in our lives that elevates our life. We don't need to consciously worry about every breath because we've kind of mastered that and that's a pattern that we can just allow to be autonomic or automatic. But but consciously I, getting something done that's really important for me and my family today, that could transcend my life. That could be something bigger. And so it's almost like we fall into the unconscious or the less subconscious state of life and we're not actually even living. We're just kind of being lived by our patterns. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, are we just being lived by our patterns? It's an interesting way of putting it. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good parts of life that come by following our patterns. Yeah. There's a lot of ways we get ourselves into trouble. <laughs> yeah. It seems, it seems like in the end, like I, I talk a lot about decision points with couples that I work with, that there's just a point where it's, it's just the intersection. It's the moment that if you just drive through it, you won't even know you pass through it, but it's a moment where you could actually make the change and do exactly something powerfully right. different. And and, exactly. it, and it is, like right. you're saying, it's elevating. It'll, it elevates the game. It counteracts our counterfeit 
or just, you know, it's just going to take us to a different level. And you're saying that that's really just two hours a day. Well, I think I think it can be more, but it's you can learn to create those two hours by recognizing that moment, those rare moments when you can make a choice. Yeah. And I'll just give, for people who are listening, maybe wondering, how do I recognize those moments? One way is that right before you start a task, there's always going to be one of those moments where autopilot can't totally kick in yet. Right after you finish a task, right after you hang up the phone, right after you cross something off your list, right after you, you, know, you walk out the door, there's always going to be one of those moments. Hmm. Another thing to be aware of is that usually there's one of those moments first thing in the morning. A lot of people will just reach over and pick up their phone and get on email right away. Totally. Get on Facebook right away. But there's one of those moments then that you could take if you had planned on it. And the other thing that you can do, this one is a big surprise, I think, for a lot of people, is that when we get interrupted, it's super frustrating. I get frustrated too. Don't get me wrong. But when that person finally leaves, they have just created a decision point because you now have a moment where it's not exactly clear what you were doing and what you should be doing. And so there's a moment to step back and say, okay, wait a second, what was actually important today? This is how we can follow through on the famous advice of do what's important, not urgent, hmm. is that by, by recognizing and taking these decision points. So that's the first step in setting yourself up for a couple of hours, real productivity is, is choosing the right task. But you also need to know not just how to choose the right task, but when. Yeah. To choose the right task. Oh, that's powerful. We're speaking with Dr. Uh, Josh Davis, who is the author of the book, Two Awesome Hours, Harnessing Your Best Time, Get Your Most Important uh, Work Done. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion, continue learning more and more tools to help us. You know, once we've kind of now made the decision at that decision uh, point, what, what do we do then? We'll get more of Josh's tips. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We will be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know what? It, it's never over. Work it harder, make it better, do it faster, make us stronger. <laughs> little daft punk for you. This is such a great group. Hey, um, we're on the phone with Josh Davis, Dr. Josh Davis, who is the author of the book, Two Awesome Hours, Harness Your Best Time, Get Your Most Important Work Done. And he's walking us through some very basic uh, concepts um, from... Um, just from his research in, uh, I think it was neuro uh, neuroscience and psychology, he's teaching us about basic decision-making. And one of the first things he's taught us from his book, Two Awesome Hours, um, Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done. The most, one of the first things he's taught us is simply that there is a decision point. And it's going to come... You know, uh, after an interruption, it's going to come right when you are about to transition to a new uh, new activity. It might be when you're arriving at work, when you're about to leave and go do another thing. These little transition points create a huge opportunity for us to consciously decide what we're going to be doing with our time. And um, he's he's going to be giving us more ideas. Dr. Josh Davis, welcome back to the show. Thanks. 
Love, uh, love the idea and uh, love what we're learning. Talk a little bit more about um, some other principles. What are, what are some of the other steps we need to live to, to really, you know, just take back our lives and maybe really truly focus on getting some of our most important stuff done? Well, one of the things that we all are guilty of, myself included of, is uh, wearing ourselves out unnecessarily mentally right before we need to be at our best. Mm. So there are certain things, for example, on my calendar today where I really want to be at my best. I want to be at my best right now for this phone call. Thank you, by the way. I want to really be able to show up and be present. Yeah. Clearly, it's a chance to reach a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise get to hear about this work. You know, so I really want to be present for that. If I know that, then those 15 minutes leading up to the phone call, it's very tempting to say, oh, I've got 15 minutes. What should I do with it? I'd like to be productive. Mm. Right? That sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing to say. And I like picking on email just because there's nothing per se about email, but I just like picking on email because it's such an easy one that everyone can relate to. So a natural thing to do is to go and check email. You know, in that time, all kinds of things can pop up, things that are probably going to influence my emotions because somebody will be upset that something's late, you know, or there will have been something I forgot about and I'll feel this social obligation and really want to get to it. Or maybe it's just something challenging that I wanted to work on, you know, that I hadn't thought through. Start really using up my resources. Mm. Now, what happens is that decision-making is something that the more we use it, the more we kind of run out of steam. And that's not the case for everything that we're capable of mentally. Uh, You can get angry and just keep on getting angry all day long, and you don't really seem to run out of steam. But something like decision-making, we do. Uh, It's relying on parts of the brain where that's just a property of it. And so the more decisions we make, the harder it is to make decisions. And there's great research showing, for example, that judges, they by the end of the day, if you get uh, by the afternoon, they're making different decisions than they are in the morning. When mm. they're, what they're doing is they're defaulting to whatever their kind of prepotent response is, whatever it would be if they didn't really think it through. Um, so that's so for whatever, for, for that judge's position, it would be whatever it would be if they didn't really think it through much. Right. Um, they just looked at the surface. And, and we all do that kind of thing. So if I'm doing a bunch of emails, or it could be other work, I'm quickly checking some, you know, kind of files that I need to, to run through or, or uh, numbers for, for a spreadsheet, that I'm making a lot of decisions. And each decision chips away at my ability to keep on sustaining and make, continue to make good decisions. So by the time I then show up, so if I go right up until the moment that this phone call comes and then flip over, well, I've just worn myself out right before I want to be at my best. Right. And that's not necessary to do. In fact, if I step back, if I take a decision point, you know, those 15 minutes, what will I do with myself? And I say, okay, wait a second. You know, it's important to me to really be at my best and be present today because it's a chance to reach a lot of people, and I want to really connect and reach them in a useful way. Right? That's going to be a lot more important than using these 15 minutes to get to some things. Right. Right. And then I'll get to those things later at a point in the day when I have worn myself out because I know that those things are less important. So I'll use my time differently and just sort of reorder what I'm going to do a little bit. There, there, so part of the research my best. Part of the research you're talking about, Josh, this gets into a lot of the research on willpower, doesn't it, where they're talking about – uh, you know, we tend to make mistakes the later it is in the day. The more, the less mental energy we have, the more mistakes are made. The more, 
the harder it is to get stuff done for ourselves because we've already used the energy of the day. That's right. And for people who want to read more about that, Roy Baumeister's book, Willpower, goes into it. And uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, both of those go into that in much more detail hmm. as well. I mean, it, it's it's really powerful research, isn't it? Because that's one of the things I run into is I've, I have like even doing a radio show, I end up exerting a lot of my creative energy the first three hours of my day and the rest of my day. I'm trying to recoup or refresh energy. But if I that's why and then I found it's just so much easier to just fall into the pattern of just monotonous or whatever. Let everyone come to me versus me go to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we can all do at the start of the day is to look at the calendar and say, what really matters? What do I really want to be present for? And set ourselves up to be present for that. Sometimes it'll mean moving it to a point earlier in the day. Sometimes it'll mean doing it right after exercise. Sometimes it'll mean just simply not doing something else draining right beforehand. Hmm. Uh, But usually there's enough flexibility in the day where you can set yourself up to really succeed at that. And remember that we don't have to be at our best all the time, and that's good because we can't be. But we can still use that time. We just use it for the things that are less important. Yeah. I mean, another point you bring up is that just stop fighting your distractions. I guess don't use your energy fighting your distractions. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, that's a fun title, isn't it? It stop is. Fighting distractions. It sounds like I'm saying, you know, just give in every time you yeah. want to check Facebook or you want to go shopping online. Um, I'm, that's actually not what I'm saying. What I'm emphasizing is the word fighting, that it's paradoxical that the fighting is the part that actually causes the problem. It's not the distractions themselves. So, first of all, one thing to understand about attention is that our attention systems are not designed to stay focused. What they're designed for is to pick up on what's changing. And they do a great job at that. They help us know when things are changing in the environment, when there's something novel or salient or interesting or dangerous. So these are, those are our mechanisms for learning that something's changing and needs our attention. And so if you've ever sat and tried to work and after 15 or 20 minutes you find your mind drifting and it's hard to stay focused, that's a really good thing. There would be a serious problem if that mm. wasn't the case. So that's the first thing to realize. But then what happens in that moment when our minds do drift, as they will, what we often try to do is to fight through it and just like, get angry at ourselves and right. shout at ourselves, and, you know, what's wrong with you? Why can't you stay focused? Right? So we, we do that, and it doesn't seem to help. No matter how much we do it, it doesn't seem to help. We still get off track. So one thing that's happening is that when you try not to do something, it actually activates the neural circuitry associated with doing that very thing. So, for example, uh, try not to think about an elephant right now. <laughs> and there's just no way to, to even make sense of that sentence without first thinking of an elephant and then not doing it. So you're, you're activating the very thoughts you don't want anyway when you're saying, you know, don't be distracted, don't start shopping, those kinds of things. But then the other thing that happens is that when we do struggle with that and we're just finding that we can't pay attention, there's too much distraction, then typically what we do is we try to take a break, but the breaks are usually something like reading the newspaper or doing some other work or... Could be checking email again, could be checking Facebook, could be shopping online, whatever it is that you do for a break. Usually these days, the break we take is a break where we're taking in lots of information. So we're not actually giving ourselves a chance to refresh. 
But there is something else we could do that would let us refresh. And this is the part that is the most counterintuitive, I think. Hmm. What's that? It's that we need to mind wander more. Yes. And I'm talking about daydreaming. Thank you. So so what happens what happens when you daydream? When you just let your mind drift and stare out the window? Some of the research fact findings pertaining to it are things like we come up with more creative solutions to challenges we've been working on. Hmm. Um, you know, if, uh, if you didn't know, let's say, for me, how to map out a chapter in the book, then you let yourself daydream for a bit. You're more likely to come up with a solution for how to map, up, map out that chapter. Hmm. It also helps with integrating some neural circuits that don't usually integrate. So we have different circuitry that is talked about as executive for executive functions, staying focused on goals. So self-control, focus on goals. And then we have other circuitry that has to do with social processing. So how we interact with others, where we stand with others, who's on our team, who's not. That's powerful. And, and it, you, you wouldn't know it because, you know, historically, we the myths, we you know, that's just lazy thinking. Keep focused. Stay focused. That's right. That's right. Exactly. We have many cultural myths that, that run against this. And they are... Incorrect. I mean, this is this is something that needs to be corrected because we're really causing ourselves a lot of unnecessary wasted time with this. So, you know, when you daydream, those circuits that usually it's one or the other, they actually are both active at the same time. One of the few times they're active at the same time and they can start to integrate. Hmm. There are several other benefits from daydreaming as well. It helps with long-term planning and a few other things. So, I mean, there are very few things I know of that are as useful for productivity as daydreaming. And you don't need to do it for very long. It can be a few minutes of just kind of staring out the window. And so if you think about what happens, if let's say, again, you're sitting at your desk, you get distracted, in that moment, if, if you were to go online and start reading the paper, you could get lost on autopilot, be gone for a half hour. But instead, if you were to just stare out the window, let yourself daydream for a little bit, you would get these added benefits you'd be more likely to come back and be more effective at your work when you come back. And here's the part I really love the best. Daydreaming gets boring. If you're staring out the window three or four minutes later, you're going to get bored and you're going to drift back. So you're more likely to come back to work more quickly. And when you do get back to work, you actually will have had some unconscious benefits occurring that you would, that are, that are very useful and that you would have missed out on if you had gone to some other distractor. Yeah, like so like your mind's asking to drift, let it drift. Let that's it drift. Yeah. It's um it's like <laughs> it's like when you're sliding in your car on the ice, you know, just kind of go with it. That is a that is a great metaphor. I hadn't heard that one before. Go with it for a while. Steer into it. Um but it's it, cuz it's kind it's true when I think about it cuz you could go distract by, you know, listening, watching a YouTube thing or whatever, listening to your favorite podcast or you could uh, actually just go daydream, and you'll you might recover faster daydreaming, and have the benefit of the fact that you've just created some synergy between different parts of your brain, your circuitry. That's right. That's right. So you're more likely to see how the pieces fit up in your life. You're more likely to solve the tricky problems. You're more likely to be able to focus when you come back. And and this, like you're saying in the title of the book, two awesome hours. I mean, again, if we could just improve one of these three, and we only got to three of the five, 
um, in your book. As we wrap it up, Josh, what would you say is is kind of the one thing? If there's one thing that all of us could remember to just do today that would make the biggest difference in how we use our time to be more productive, what would you say is the one thing? The one thing. I would say the one thing is this. The one thing is to look at your day, give yourself a couple of minutes, and it doesn't take more than a couple of minutes, to say what actually matters to me, what's relevant to my career, what's relevant to moving me forward, what's relevant to helping the company move forward. You know, what actually matters today? How can I set myself up to be at my best for that? Now, the book has lots of things that can help for that, but you already know from this conversation as well as from your life experience some ways to help set yourself up for success for those for those times yeah so that's one guiding principle i think one design that can be used and and i like that we already know i mean our conscience we've been at this for years so we, we have a lot of ideas we just almost need to take the space in that decision point to make the decision um good stuff dr josh davis great work the book is two awesome hours Harness your best time. Get your most important work done by Dr. Josh Davis. Uh, go look it up. Uh, it's you know it's where all books are sold. And um, you can also follow uh, more about Josh. Just Google his name, Josh Davis, and you'll find some of his great work um, from Columbia. He's written on HBR, on Harvard Business Review. He's everywhere, folks. We'll take a break. When we come back, uh, wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Townsend Show. Great uh, guest, Josh Davis. And uh, when you think about making decisions in your life, he, he, that whole idea of recognizing that there's a decision point is critical. And I think it's going to be in our next guest, Dr. Ron Hager, as well, after the break. It, it's going to always come down to, um, and I see it in relationship work, you have to at some point see that there's a choice to be made. And some of us either don't see the choice early enough or we don't recognize that it's actually a choice. Uh, a lot of us feel like we have to do things. But um, like uh, Josh Davis was saying, in the end, if you can start to see that when you're about to sit down and start doing some work um, in your at your office, you, you have a very important pivot point right there. Because you can either just fall into the pattern, checking the email, doing what comes easy, responding to the three inquiries you need to get back to, get back to the phone calls, or you you can make a choice. So what's the best thing we can do right now? What's the best thing we can do right now? And whether it's me doing the radio show, I have to make that choice. What's the best next thing to talk about? Or for you in your life, what's the next best activity to do in your day? Or in our marriage, when someone says something that's offensive to us, how do I now want to respond to that? I have a choice right now how I'm going to take what was just said. Each of those are choice points. Or in our next hour, we'll be talking about some some ways to stay healthy through the holidays, and there will be a choice there. I mean, there's a big chance to totally engorge yourself and gain a ton of weight, but you have to recognize there's a moment, and we make the choices. doesn't mean you can't still eat and have fun. It doesn't mean you can't 
you know, find a way to daydream, as our last guest was telling us. Daydreaming has its benefits. So just recognize there's choice. Yeah, I believe it's one of the universal principles of of mankind is there's agency, and we need to use our agency to to our advantage and also to maximize our our time here, to maximize our life, to maximize our family, our relationships, our health. Um, we will eventually, I believe, be judged by how we manage those choices, and uh, the judgment won't have to be harsh. It'll just be the reality of what you gained because of how you spend your time. If you spend your time and you garner more information and more peace and more love in your life, you're going to have the advantage. And if you don't and you have harder relationships with more difficult activity and more and more uh, poor health, to me that is what hell is. I don't think your God needs to drive you to hell. I think we're living it half the time. And most of it's created, right, by how we tend to choose in that moment of choice. Powerful, powerful stuff, folks. We're going to take a break. Uh, Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show, done in the can. When we come back, Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us. We'll be talking about how to change your health during the holidays. Just focus on the healthy stuff. Stick with us. More uh, good, hopefully, trying to help you see the good in the world right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's hour number three of the show. We've made it three hours and who's counting down to the week, to the extended weekend? Not me. Not this fella. Really? Not me, no. Oh. I get to work all day today and all day tomorrow. And then I'm going to drive four hours with bald tires <laughs> in a snowstorm. Yes. Uphill, both ways. So if I'm not back Monday, hey, great knowing you all. It's been fun. It's been fun. Why who gets get your office? You can have my office. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sweet. Can I have it? Whoever wants it, nope, take I it. I got it. Why? You don't <laughs> even you barely sit at a desk. You're not even. Well, I'll sit at it more if you I don't have even an work office. here. Do you work here, Ben? <laughs> when did you start working here? Oh, that's so sad. So, so sad. So, um, did I. I didn't want to bring this up, but I'm bringing it up. Ben came in the other day. Which will be something a lot of people begin conversations with at Thanksgiving dinner. Exactly. I didn't want to bring this up. I didn't up, want to bring this up. But, and then. But can we just talk about Donald Trump for a minute? War is on. <laughs> uh, here's the, the deal. So Ben came in and I put, a, I put a raisin down right when he walked in. Okay. And he saw the raisin and I just covered it with a cup. All right. And. A little um, experiment. Uh-huh. And he immediately flipped the cup and just threw the raisin in his mouth. Huh. And you know what it taught me? What's that? This is, a, this is now, it's how you predict a child's intelligence. Insult me to my face. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Cruz, Ted Cruz. Um, it, you, what, there's a new test that you use a raisin. I forgot that was Ted from Cruz. the University of Warwick, and um, it's basically the simplest way to test the aptitude of a child. You and put it, a raisin down. You put, put a, a cup raisin down. down. This the research has tested hundreds of 20 month old children, placing a raisin under a cup and telling them to wait 
until they were told to eat the raisin. Just wait. Okay. And then you see how if they can do it. Because for some it's excruciating because they want that little raisin. By the way, none of my kids would ever chase a raisin. I I was thinking maybe a piece of candy. Skittles. At this point, yeah. Piece of heaven. See, I ate the raisin just because I knew the test was stupid enough, but it didn't even matter. Mm. Okay. Okay, more intelligence there. Uh, And I have a raisin. Yeah, you have a lot of raisins. Um, In the end, researchers found that toddlers who successfully waited to eat the raisin had an IQ seven points higher when they were eight years old. Interesting. So it's the it's the marshmallow study from Stanford, the delay gratification study. But instead of using a marshmallow, we're now using raisins. They can follow direction and yeah. then withstand their urge to want to uh-huh. eat whatever you put down. The researchers hmm. also found out that children or uh, 18 or 20-something-year-old young men who don't wait to eat the raisin. Hmm. Interesting. They end up working in radio. Okay. Well, you know, what's your aptitude, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so does that mean that we all failed the test at one Just time? Just you. Just you. Yeah. But we're all at radio. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Ours was more just a fall from grace. Yeah. It's like we tried something That's else. We got. Oh, I guess we'll settle I mean, it, it, it. Yeah. We, you're, we you're climbing up. We're falling down. That's mm-hmm. kind of what Matt's saying. Oh, That's well, exactly. thank you for gracing me with your presence. A lower child's gestational age uh, increase means that they usually have a lower inhibitory control. So they're more likely... To, uh, so if a, a premature baby is more likely to not do so well on the test. Hmm. And anybody currently running a board for the Matt Townsend show. Okay. Well, what would you think would happen with a baby that was late? They would just never get to the raisin. Really? <laughs> they did you get that far? They're too tired. <laughs> They've been so late. They're just lazy late people. No, anyway, interesting study though, right? So it's yeah. just a fun way to uh, torture your children over the holidays. I'm totally going to do it. I know 18-month-old children. Do you, yeah. Yeah, I bet you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just be like, here. Test. Figure test. that out. Test, test, test. Uh, by the way, people who sleep late are actually smarter and more creative. This is what I've been told. Again, another knock against us and our show. Yeah, we get up way early. So what does that mean? According to research out of London School of Economics, those who deviate from the normal sleep schedule are considered more intelligent. Yes, we are. This finding is supported by research uh, suggesting that those who create new evolutionary patterns compared to those who stick with the normal patterns developed by our ancestors are the most progressive. That seems contrary. Hmm. People who sleep late, they say, are actually smarter and more creative, except this is saying the exact opposite. Here's the study. Uh, Those who are first to change, to seek out novelty, are always the most progressive and intelligent in society. And according to researchers at the University of Madrid, after analyzing the sleeping patterns of 1,000 students, they found that those who went to bed later and consequently woke up later scored higher on inductive reasoning tests. Hmm. So it's basically if you run counter to traditional norms or patterns, apparently they say you're you're smarter and more creative. So if you avoid getting up and going to sleep with the sun Mm – I think that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, eventually you got to get a job. Eventually. Because, I mean, the only reason you're sleeping that far in is you have nothing to do that day. That's right. Or yeah. you've failed the raisin test and life is over for you. Well, there's lots to think of today, Matt. 
Weird. That's why we bring you these ideas. Any more studies? Any more? There's a lot, but I'm yeah, not going to okay. get to them because um, we got to get to the headlines. I mean, I know there's a lot of other things going on around the world. Terry, take us to him. What's up? Thanks, Matt. Syrian rebels are telling the press that they shot and killed a Russian pilot who ejected from a jet shot down by the Turkish Air Force over the Syrian border. A rebel fighter also told NBC News that the pilot was killed while they were attempting to capture him alive. Another report suggests that both pilots were killed by the rebels. Either way, look for a reaction from Russia. By either, as we talked about earlier, militarily, or they'll just shut off the natural natural gas to Turkey. They'll get you one way or another. Either way. The State Department issued a worldwide travel alert on Monday warning U.S. citizens about the risk of potential terrorist attacks. NBC's Pete Williams on the warnings. So Homeland Security's advice for people tonight here at home, travel, attend public events, celebrate the season, but be vigilant. Current information suggests that ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, and other terrorist groups continue to plan terrorist attacks in multiple regions. And as I said, stay vigilant. Mm. So I guess look around. Yeah. Is that what that means? Yeah. yeah. They're saying stay out of large groups, but, you know, have fun. I like to say keep your head on a swivel or a pivot. Is that what they call it? Yeah. Keep your head on a swivel. Is that what they call it? It sounds weird. Yeah, keep it on a swivel. You keep looking. Just keep looking. Air travelers this holiday weekend may find bomb-sniffing dogs at the TSA checkpoints. Oh, While dogs wow. have long been used to inspect checked baggage out of sight of most passengers, the TSA is gradually introducing them at passenger checkpoints. So That's crazy. That's that's a whole different game. Yeah, it starts amping it up when you start seeing the bugs. I love it because I love dogs. These aren't dogs you want to go hang out with. It's the bomb, it's the bomb-sniffing cats. That drive me crazy. I'm so allergic. A new poll out. Ben Carson uh, says his boomlet. What's a boomlet? Don't ask. Okay, his popularity. He kind of shot up there for a while. Uh, Ben Carson. That's a little boom. A little boom, a boomlet. Yeah, a little boom. So now. Okay, that's a big thing. That would not be a boom. That's a boom. That's a boom. That's that's a boom. Basto. So Ted Cruz has started to rise. According to a Quinnipiac poll re- uh, released Tuesday, Donald Trump is still in first place in Iowa, 25 percent. Senator Cruz at 23 percent. Mm. That's within the uh, margin of error, plus or minus four. Uh, Ted, and then you have uh, what uh, Carson dropped to eighteen percent. So we dropped wow. ten points in the last week or two since I did the last poll with Senator Marco Rubio holding steady. So now at we have a cruise boomlet. There's a cruise boomlet in effect in Iowa. Cruiselet, which I'm not sure if that's legal. It almost seems like it's just kind of like people are. It, it's they run up. Trump's kind of running, and then they run Carson in. Everybody takes a shot. Yeah, yeah. And then he just fades away. He fades out. And now Cruz is like willingly running up. Yes, he is. This is like Normandy. <laughs> You're trying to take you know the what beach. I mean? It's yeah. like they're trying to take the beach and one by one. See what Scary. happens as we keep watching that. The Commerce Department said Tuesday that the U.S. economy grew faster in the third quarter of 2015 than it previously estimated. The revised statement pegged growth at 2.1% up from the reported 1.5%. The growth was driven by business stocking up on inventories, but the rate is still considered anemic enough to possibly keep the Federal Reserve from raising interest rates during the, its next meeting. Mm. So we want. Keep it anemic. Keep it low. The percentage of young adults ages 18 to 34 living with their parents is higher now than it was during the recession, the Wall Street Journal reports. Yay. As many as 31% of young adults were living with their parents in March of 2015, up slightly from the previous year and the 27% in 2005. By the way, I think along with that stat, uh, parents moving away from their children 
It's also on the rise. It's on the rise. They're it's tired. A weird of this. parallel. Uh, and finally, Nestle Japan. Yes. Oh, I didn't know there was a Nestle Japan. Okay. They announce a new flavor of the popular chocolate Kit Kat that will be covered in real gold. You eat it? Apparently, the chocolate is dubbed Sublime Gold Kit Kat. They're safe for consumption and will be available at the <laughs> end of December at Kit Kat chocolate shops around Japan for $16. So you'll have to fly, but you know. Well, it seems like a waste of gold. They are being produced in a limited quantity of 500 hand wrapped sticks. In addition to the release of the edible golden Kit Kat, a non edible 24 karat gold Kit Kat will be raffled off yeah. to customers who sign up. Hmm. Who ate my kick? <laughs> who ate my gold Kit Kat? Sorry, Dad. So, would you eat a gold Kit Kat? No. No? You no. sure? No. But I would buy a 24 karat gold Kit Kat. And I'd wear it around my neck okay. as bling. That'd be interesting. Don't you think it'd be hot? No. It's like a grill. Yeah, but on a necklace. But on the necklace. Kind of strange. It's a Kit Kat. Well, it'd be a chain. Yeah, it'd be a huge chain. Yeah. Yeah, with a lot of support beams and structures. <laughs> anyway, interesting stuff. Crazy news. Man, what a waste. What a waste of some good gold. Just shoots right through you. No pun intended on the waste factor. Hey, we got to take a break. When we come back, guess who's going to be joining us? Who else? Who better than Ron Hager joining us? He is our uh, associate professor of exercise sciences. He's going to be walking us through some tips to stay active and uh, healthy during the holidays. Stick with us, folks. We're going to be giving you the tools to maintain your health, maybe even start a new regimen. Heaven forbid. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you know you're getting ready to go just feast and just gorge yourself with goodness. That sounds horrible. Um, our, our next guest uh, is an oldie but a goodie with the show. He's been doing the show for 55 years. Ron Hager's his name, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at Brigham Young University. Ron, I'm pretty sure you've been doing this morning show longer than you've been doing it longer than I have. Uh, I guess you've I been have. at I, it. Yeah, I was doing it with uh, Marcus Smith for probably close to two years. And I have it on good notice that you happen to be the best tennis player. Have we brought this up on the air? I the hope, best I, I tennis player <laughs> in the state of Utah over the age of 50. Is that true? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, I always say when it comes to athletes that whatever you're talking about, basketball, baseball, football, tennis, golf, whatever, that that the best you know, has probably never swung a club or yeah. picked up the rack. So, the best is yet to be. But, I, I, yeah, I played in some tournaments and at the senior games. And no, some, but, I mean, I hear you're the best. I hear the governor even plays with you. The governor plays. <laughs> the governor. I've never played with the governor, but he he's a neighbor. He's uh, coming. He's coming to visit us in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll set up a match for you. Thank you. <laughs> you do that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? That would be great. Play with the governor yeah. of the state of Utah. Hey, so uh, holidays. You know, it's it's the time to go be with family, but you know, there's you can also stay healthy. You don't have to. You can try. You don't have to, you know, ruin your whole life. No. You know, you know, the next stretch 
through Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's uh, can be very disruptive oh, for, yeah. for people, especially those that have been working hard all year, you know, and have, have been pretty compliant, you know, to some of their, you know, uh, opportunities to be more healthy. And, and this can be a tough time for people. Uh, but, you know, uh, Matt, there are certain things people will never do, and it's because they they function or they operate on a principle. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I asked you to do something that you thought was morally or ethically right. wrong Not or a violation of your principle, you would say, I'd rather die in some cases. I mean, there are there are examples of that. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, overeating is morally or ethically wrong. I mean, maybe some people think it is, maybe they don't. Um, but have you ever given much thought to principles of healthy behavior mm. and, and, and adhering to those like you would adhere to other principles? Well, you're not going to drink gasoline. Right. I mean, yeah. you're just – so if somebody said, hey, try the gasoline. Right. Yeah. Or or even maybe more realistic, you know, you're, if, if, if somebody said, you know, I'd like you to embezzle some money. Yeah, we're not doing that. You're, you're going to say no. That, that's not what I do. Because, well, well, some would say what's in it for me. Well, they might. But then – see, the, but, but the same is true. The principles of health – yeah, you've you've got to decide what they are for you. I guess you've got yeah. to buy into them. Yeah, I was just telling my class the other day about a woman that I heard about. Uh, her name is uh, Mavis Lindgren. She's since passed away, uh, but she set a a world record at the Portland Marathon or a new, a new Portland Marathon record uh, at ninety years old. Wow! And uh, and that was like her sixth or seventh time she had run that marathon. Anyway, in an interview, she said that she had not missed a single day of training in seven years. What? Well, now, so that that's, she's operating on a principle. Yeah. She's saying nothing is going to get in the way of this. And I think it's okay to feel that way about certain things. You now, it, at other times, you do need to be more flexible. You need, need to be willing to compromise. But think about what's going to happen during the holidays. A person who has been working hard and operating according to a principle, but then lets this little opportunity sneak in, a point of justification or compensation yeah. to say, well, it's the holidays, so yeah. I, I don't I'm have to take do this, or I don't have to do that, or I'm going to take a break. Yeah, why would you do that? No, this is of all the time that you – because stress is also going up. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be more fatigued. Sleep might drop. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of things going on. Yeah. Of all the time you need to stay at it, yeah. it's probably right now. Yeah. How do we stay active – when a lot of things are changing. I mean, there's a reason it's easy for us to just bail. on. Well, our... there's, there's a lot of good ideas out there. A lot of times families, when they're together, they have traditions where they do play tennis yeah. or they have a flag football game or something like that. So there are opportunities to stay active. Um, and I don't think it's so much the activity thing that gets in people's way as much as it is the eating thing. But I'd like to talk a little bit about both of those. Yeah. Um, here's one tip for staying, I guess, more active during the holidays. Uh you know, be be prepared at a moment's notice to do something active. So, hmm. you know, wear your walking or running shoes, Yeah. you know, during the day, uh, you know. Um, yeah, because you have to change them and, or change your clothes to go be active. Yeah, you might say, oh, I just don't have time for that. Because, you know, like you mentioned, you're, you're in a time crunch during the holidays, uh, but you're even setting timers in the kitchen. Yeah. So <laughs> why not set the timer and then do some kind of a timed exercise at the same time? We do it um, every morning – most of us, in fact, all of us pretty much on Thanksgiving, we go on a walk. And it ends up being about 10 miles. Yeah. Wow. 
we used to walk from Salt Lake City to Bountiful. Wow. And it, uh, it I didn't, I had, it was my wife's family's tradition. I had no idea. Right. <laughs> and, um, like we would end up taking our kids when they were young, pushing the kids, carrying the kids, and we would make it. And the entire time we're talking, we're we're loving each other, we're bonding, but we are also, you know, we're we're not eating, which is interesting because you're not doing the pre Thanksgiving eat; you're getting right. ready. But it, it's the most bonding thing we do, and yeah. we'll we'll do it this Thursday. Yeah, well, I, mean, I I think that's awesome. So if you don't already have a tradition like that. There's nothing wrong with making a new tradition. And you don't need to do 10 miles. No, you don't. So, Try three. So, so here's some things you can do. You know, you can make a new tradition. Uh, if you're planning on going shopping, this is also a time of year to go shopping. Let's say you want to go to the mall. Uh, make yourself do two laps hmm. around the mall before you start looking in any stores. Yeah. You know, or if you have to run to the grocery store, which a lot of people are going to be doing, um, instead of feeling disgusted about how packed the parking lot is, uh, park as far away from the store entrance as, as you, you can, can. That's, right. th- that's reasonable, and just walk right. and make yourself enjoy it. Just tell yourself it's okay. That's why I wanted to buy a Corvette. <laughs> exactly. So that I could park really yeah. far away from everywhere yeah. and stay healthy. Yeah. Um, you know, there's also other things you can do when you're shopping or when you're out and about or even when you're traveling, going through airports or whatever. Look for opportunities to be active. Take the stairs instead of the uh, the elevator or the escalator. Take uh, the, just walk instead of using the moving sidewalks in airports. Uh, I came across a quote some time ago that I've always liked. A person's health can be judged by which they take two at a time, pills or stairs. <laughs> okay. so, That's so, so great. So, so look for those opportunities uh, to be active. Now, here's something my daughter's been doing. She's only 15. She's pretty fit. Uh, but she downloaded like this uh, Nike Fit yeah, uh, Nike. cell phone app uh-huh. or whatever it is. I haven't actually looked at it very closely, but she's been using it um, on my phone. And uh, she she told me uh, yesterday, uh, she said, oh, my legs are so sore. So this is a 15-year-old who's already fairly active but is engaging in a regular routine, and, and she's using this cell phone app. It's pushing her. To, to push her. That is great. And uh, and those are free. Oh, yeah. Those are free. And, and you know, so you can do that kind of well, stuff. Well, and set some goals. I have uh, – there's the stair – or the step counters everyone's using now on their phones. Uh-huh. Yeah. Set some goals to be more aggressive. Yeah. You're going to be shopping anyway. You could blow up your record in steps. Yeah. And and there's some big numbers you'll be hitting yeah. over the holidays. And, you know, and as you gather with family and friends, maybe you could even make it a competition. Mm-hmm. You know, who can get the most steps over the holidays? During the or, season, right. Or whatever, you know. That's um, great. Uh, and, then, and then for those people that are financially minded, uh, I came up with this idea. And I've actually used this with some people that I've tried to help, you know, with uh, exercise programs and weight loss programs because they tend to relate to it. You know, money's in every facet of our life. Um, so, so, so what you do is uh, consider your physical activity, sedentary time as, as kind of like a bank account. Hmm. And if you sit for more than 30 minutes, you withdraw a dollar. Yeah. And if you're active or moving for more than 30 minutes, you deposit a dollar. You keep track of that over your waking hours in the course of a day. And are you in the red or the black at the end of the day? That's great. Yeah. So there's an idea. That's great. And yeah. then, I mean, you could then truly use money. Take the money <laughs> and use the to. money to go shopping. Sure, sure. If you like, want to. Turn it into money. Yeah, you could do something And like I know that. people that would, you know, bite off their leg <laughs> yeah, so you could for incent- 20 more dollars. So you could incentivize yourself. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, or maybe <laughs> maybe enter the raffle for the, for the golden Kit Kat or something like that. <laughs> That's so sad <laughs> but true. Ron, let's take a break and come back. Okay. I, I'd love you to talk, too, about eating. Okay. Um, yeah, let's do that. And portions because that's a big thing. We, we tend to blow up or some of the portioning yeah. that we yeah. – 
we do. Let's take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, hopefully live longer, especially making it through the holiday season. It's a great time to set some new habits. We'll be back with Dr. Ron Hager. More on your holiday habits right here on the Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, getting ready for the holiday season, how to have some healthier habits or change some of your habits during the season. Joining us to walk us through some ideas uh, is Ron Hager, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at Brigham Young University. Uh, Ron, thanks again for being here. Happy to be here. The, um, the holidays bring a lot of great opportunities, conversations, relationships, and some seriously good pie. Yeah, and good, good, just about everything. I mean, it's in, good in, time. in abundance. Yeah, and you don't want to like you're not trying to ruin the holiday for everyone. Oh, you don't have to deprive yourself, yeah. but but you don't also have to participate in a gluttonous way no. to prove that you haven't been deprived. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's such that's yeah. how our mind works, though. Huh? It, it is how our mind works, and there's there's a few things that you can do. You know, one of the things that's going to be hard for a lot of people are just the snacks, you know, just food, oh, yeah. just food is everywhere from nuts to chips to crackers to cookies to cheese balls to, <laughs> to whatever, hors d'oeuvres <laughs> of all kinds. cookies, yeah. Yeah, there's just all kinds of things going on. Now, there's a, uh, a researcher that I'm aware of. I've read some of her work and her studies. Uh, she has an approach, a dietary approach that is more complicated than what I'm about to tell you, but she calls it volumetrics. Okay. And in a nutshell, uh, her name's Barbara Rolls and... Uh, Last I heard, she was at Penn State, but I'm not sure if she's still there or not. But anyway, this 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 approach called volumetrics in in a in a in an overly simplistic perspective is this: to to look for and eat foods that have more grams per serving than calories per serving. Okay. As opposed to these most common snacks. Yeah. And the and the foods that come, you know, prepackaged in boxes, or you know, we're talking about cookies and things mm-hmm. like that. They have more calories, calories per serving than grams per serving. So you'd need the box, wouldn't we? Well, well I guess you could eat the box. The, <laughs> the box would definitely have more grams per serving than calories. But, but I need to know if it's if it's heavy in in uh, more heavy in the gram, the weight right. than the calorie. So where this ends up leading you is to more whole foods, yeah. whole grains, fruits and vegetables, those kinds of things. Those have more grams per serving than calories per serving. So it just helps you avoid packing on those extra calories. Is her name Barbara Rolls? Yeah. yeah. Isn't Rolls a really bad name? I, I, suppose, for... it, I suppose it could be. I, I'd never actually like thought of that. I don't know. Yeah, I'd yeah. never well, actually thought of that. Well, the minute you said it, I started thinking of Rolls. Yeah. Well, there's you know, a lot. Of, sometimes things mm, like that exist. So in, in addition to this idea of calories, here's another uh, opportunity uh, that you may consider. Uh, don't drink a calorie yeah. during the holidays. I love you, this advice. You can rack up. So many calories, yeah. So quickly, if you're drinking them, who wants a smoothie? Now, now I know that means that you know, and, and we're talking about both alcoholic and non-alcoholic right. opportunities to drink. Alcohol has seven calories per gram, so it's calorically dense. Uh, but some alternatives, I mean, yeah, it means you have to avoid the eggnog or eliminate the eggnog, mm. which is which is a bummer, I guess. Uh, but you know, I mean, you could have 
I know this sounds like it's a little watered down, but you could have like a sparkling water, uh, you know, and squeeze some lemon juice or lime juice in it or something. Uh, but there's but there's no no calories because you know, you're you not that. paying attention. You're eating this high caloric meal anyway, and you're throwing back <laughs> calories just to wash it down. Yeah. So just use water. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to eat more. Yeah. I mean, I guess you, you're and, not and, trying to compensate. But and, and by the way, these are not just things you can do for the holidays. It's not like we we can do it other days. You, you you don't want to have a reversal here where you say, you know, yeah. okay, during the holidays is where I really become you know, self-discipline. Mm-hmm. And then for the rest of the year, I can do what I want. I mean, people have these 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 kind of a reversal mindsets sometimes that, you know, if I do this, then I can do that. Mm-hmm. So I don't want people to think that, you know, where you're good most of the year and you, you compensate during the holidays that, you know, you don't want to say, well, I'll be good during the holidays and compensate right. the rest of the year. So we're talking about a lifetime thing well, here. We're talking about a, a set of principles or guidelines that you can live with no matter what's going on in your life. What if you're used to, like, let's say, consuming 2,000 calories a day? Uh-huh. Um, you, you, can, you could go for 2,500 calories. Sure. But just compensate. Well, you could. Just go exercise. Yeah. I mean, but so you can still live your caloric kind of goals. Yeah. But let's just let it be a day, right? Not sure. a week. Yeah. So, so that, that, you know, that's another great tip. Um, you know, if if a person does kind of mess up, yeah, even if it's subconscious where they're saying, you know, I feel guilty, don't beat yourself yeah. up too much over it because that that can make things worse. Yeah, but then you'll just go eat more. But you do have to be careful with this idea of trading things out, right? Because there's good evidence to show that, you know, because I know people that say, well, you know, I run ten miles every day so I can eat whatever I right. want. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really work like that. Or I'm lean, so I don't need to exercise. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really work like that. Um, it, you, you can't, um, you know, trade out. You, it, it's kind of like, a, you know, an opportunity here where you don't want to say, you know, I'm doing this good thing, therefore I'm justified in doing this bad right. thing. You're, I mean, that that's just not a principle you want to well, get you, into. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, I can... Sin, but I'll repent. <laughs> it doesn't work. By the way, they're both principles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but one's going to serve you and one's going to yeah, hurt you. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Well, here's another one that might sound a little extreme. I know people that have done it, uh, you know, during the holidays, wear clothes that fit a little tighter. I love that you know, advice. So, so, you know, because I already do that. So if your waistline, if you're wearing a pair of pants where you're feeling kind of the, the pinch of the waistline, <laughs> that might, you know, help you either remember or not want to make it even tighter, you know, by, by overeating or something like Gladys, that. Gladys, your sweater is so tight. Yes. So, so, I know, I'm trying to eat less today. Yeah. So it, it might just act as a reminder. So, so that's something you could do. Um, you know, and there's, again, just like with the activity thing, there's opportunities here to create new traditions, uh, you know that, that that can be actually be indications of care and mm-hmm. loving. You know where you know where, where you, you 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 demonstrate love for one another by, you know, wanting to help each other do better. Uh, you know, skipping appetizers. Uh, you know, or or replacing these you know these fancy appetizers with just fruit and vegetable. Yeah, what, that's what I'm wondering. If like you are the hostess or the host, just prepare a healthier whole food, whole meal. Yeah, yeah. I also read a book recently called Mindless Eating. Mm. You know, think about that one. I mean, uh, you know, you go to a grocery store, Matt, there's there's like 2,500 different foods yeah. in the grocery store. And supposedly they're all edible. You know, I, I question whether they are actually food or not, some of them. But 
Uh, we live in a food carnival, oh, basically. Yeah. And so there's a lot of mindless eating, I'm sure, that goes on. So uh, Brian Wainsick, a Ph.D., wrote this book, Mindless Eating. He suggests never having more than two different items on your plate at one time. Hmm. By doing this, you may be better able to control how much you eat than when you have, you know, quote, a little bit of 20 different things. Yeah. So in other words, have no more than two different things on your plate. Eat those. See how you feel Go when back. you're done. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And, and see what you feel. Like yeah. actually check in. Yeah. Okay, yeah. what am I feeling? Do now? I need more? Yeah. And then if, if you do feel like you need a little more, then I guess go back and maybe try something different. But no more than two things on your plate. Because what happens is you get these big spreads. Right. There's 15 or 20 different things, and you want, try it. A, try it all. A, you want a little bit of everything right. on your plate. Right. But, you know, uh, 20 spoonfuls of whatever <laughs> is a lot of food on it's your plate. Add up. But if those two things are like a rack of ribs... <laughs> <laughs> and a twelve ounce steak, yeah, or yeah, you might, yeah, or, or a half a cheesecake, right? It's like, oh yeah, because that's a plate. It's, it's half, a half plate. of <laughs> your plate is cheesecake, and the other half is ribs. Part of what you're teaching is, though, I like going back to the principles. There are principles you're going to live your health by, right? And right. we need to know, and like moderation, right? I'm sure is one exercise, yeah, hydration, yeah. Well, you know, you think about Mavis Lindgren, the the the, the old person that was a that was a runner. By the way, at, at about 70, 75 years old, she was suffering from some health problems. Her doctor said, you know, if you were more active, it might help you. That's what prompted her. Oh, so I'm just going to start running marathons. Yeah, yeah. So her doctor probably said, you know, at at, at 80, you know, if you you start running, maybe you'll feel like you're 70. I don't know. Yeah. Um, But anyway, you know, for her example of not missing a day of training in seven years, uh, you know, and, and running her last marathon at 90 years old. That, that, no, that's amazing. That's a woman who has made that a priority. Now, people will say all the time, oh, yeah, health is a number one priority for me. Right. Pass well, the potatoes. Well, is it or isn't it? Right, exactly. No, you I know? think that's great so, so, so also don't feel bad yeah. about near obsession with, a, with, the, with principles that relate to your health. That's right. That's right. It's okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, I think that's powerful. Good stuff. Ron, you did it again. Yeah, thanks. You probably just saved a lot of lives. I don't know, but maybe. And now I know I only need two steaks yeah. on a plate. Yeah, and if you stand up for 30 minutes today while you're doing your show, give yourself a dollar. I just did. Okay, good. Um, I don't have a dollar. Ben, <laughs> do you have a dollar? Good stuff. Ron Hager, we'll take a break. Uh, again, um, Ron's on every month, uh, twice a month. I don't know. Ron's on a lot. But if you want to get a hold of Ron, Ron, where can they find you? Uh, well, you, you can email me, Hager, H-A-G-E-R, at BYU.edu. That's just my uh, my email, wow. my, my, my email for work. you just get to use your last name. Yeah, well, believe it or not, it's an alias. It's some crazy thing like Hager underscore oh, right. or, yeah. or Ron, Ronald, or whatever. But Ron I try and tell master. people what an underscore is, and they say, well, I don't, I don't yeah. know that. So Hager, Hager, Hager at, at BYU.edu. BYU.edu. Good stuff. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll go visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
I'm going to shoot it down to our good buddies down there at BYU uh, Sports Nation. Jerem Jordan today and Brian Logan. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning. What goes into the song choices? Well, I'm so glad you asked because I have a holiday activity that I wanted to do with you guys. It's called um, eye gazing. And what we do is uh, it's, it's really gaining popularity around South Florida. It's where you look into each other's eyes for about four minutes. We'll play some music, and it will really bring you closer together. That reminds me of um, the movie <laughs> Baby Mama. Uh, there's a character in there who decides he's going to reward someone with five minutes of uninterrupted eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's people really doing this eye-gazing thing. It's like becoming really popular. It's a form of meditation with somebody. Does, uh, hmm. And I, th- I just thought you like guys attracted to that person. Like, it no, be no, wife or it no. Could be it could Jerem. just be. It could be your. It could be your co-host. It could be Jerem. It could be Jerem. We're probably not going to do that. Well, maybe it, if Jerem had blonde hair and blue eyes, maybe <laughs> it'd be he's a dirty blonde, isn't he? And, and my name was Kenna. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> How awkward is that? To, is that what we're calling Jerem now, Kenna? Okay, that's my wife's name. Okay, cute, cute. Okay, so uh, so I'm getting you don't want to do eye gazing, even though it is incredibly popular. I would do it. I don't um, do things that are just incredibly popular to do them. I would, especially if it's eye gazing. I would do it if if Justin Bieber was playing. Mm, Oh, I would do it. Who wouldn't do it with the Biebs? That's right. Have you heard his new? Have you heard his new album? Do you like it? Like five million times. It's just on repeat. You're loving it. Yeah. You're a I'm believer. A you I'm are a, a believer. But you, have you always been a fan? I've always been a fan since he was like 13 years old. But not when he was like in his crazy years, like going well, to the I bathroom was, in I a was, bucket. I was a fan. I was a fan then of his music. You know, I didn't judge what he did outside. Yeah, you didn't his, like that. Yeah, okay, yeah. Of his craft, you know, that was, I necessarily didn't agree with some of the things that he did. But he's that back. Didn't mean I was going to not listen to his his music. You yeah. Know? And I think that's my issue with with Spencer. I have this argument with Spencer all the time. Uh, it's Taylor Swift or it's Justin Bieber. And Taylor Swift, <laughs> you can like both. No, you can't. Uh, Taylor <laughs> Swift. It's like it, it, it's just because she is this this nice sweet girl, and uh, you know she does have good music. But because she, you know, kind of d- doesn't get in trouble, uh, you don't really hear any yeah. negative things about her. It's like she's America's sweetheart, and that's cool and everything. And I'm all for Justin's fans, Canadian you know, listening up to listen. I'm all for fans, <laughs> you know, looking up to a role model. However, when you compare music to music, head to head, it's not it's not even close, man. Yeah. Well, okay, close. Well, let's throw Adele in there. Adele, I, I yeah, she I had like 500 million England's nanny. She had 500 million <laughs> views on her single. That's yeah, amazing. It's, it's beautiful. That is a lot. That, that's there, a part of my playlist, too. There was a Saturday Night Live skit uh, on Saturday that used Adele's song, I guess, Hello, yeah. the name of it, mm-hmm. to, to quell potential <laughs> holiday of family issues. You know, the younger generation doesn't want to hear the older generation. This is the skit. Older generations, like, you know, take on ISIS and right. politics <laughs> and Donald Trump and whoever, you know. So all of a sudden, you know, they play... Hello, and then the whole family sings together, and they forget about what they're oh, talking about. See, that's great. <laughs> then they could do some eye gazing. Yeah, Don't you think? I, I could do some. No, I could do eye gazing with Adele for sure. They, they say it's only Just awkward for a few minutes, voice. then it subsides, and then you really feel connected. What are we talking about? I don't know. 
eye gazing? I don't know. I'm trying to look at Jaron right now. My head's tilted to the side. I wish we had video of this because <laughs> this could be powerful. And I think it, I think Spencer would be jealous. Spencer would be jealous, yeah. It's actually, probably be None easier. of these reasons are compelling for It'd me. Spencer easy. would be jealous. It's popular. <laughs> like, Spencer has blonde. I'd actually prefer Spencer because he has blonde hair. Yeah. Do you oh. see blue eyes or are they green? I think they're green. They're like a hazel. Huh? I have to stare. At, I stare at them more than his wife, probably. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> see, they do it. They do it without knowing that they do it. Yeah, that's just love. If you notice, I stare at my laptop more than I stare at Spencer on this show. But you're probably more connected to your laptop then. Yeah. Emotionally. That's sad. <laughs> anyway, I'm just trying to help you guys. I mean, I just want to do whatever I can to boost ratings. I appreciate that. And I think that's you know one way. That, hey, there are no bad ideas, just bad people with ideas, you know? <laughs> I, but by the way, you can take it on a team retreat and have everyone on your team do the same thing. I could, your team would love this idea. Yeah. Okay. We, could, we, we have some. Yeah, we have some students that might like that. They would love it. Hey, are, are you guys doing your show today? I mean, you're still doing the show, right? Yep. You're yeah. not going to do eye gazing, but you will do no. BYU Sports Nation. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the following. If if you could, uh, let's get the exact phrasing. If you could have a player back next year from this year's BYU football team, who would it be? Ooh, that's easy. So, in the spirit of Taysom Hill, his potential return. Oh, that would be great. Uh, who would you want to come back? Bronson Kafusi. So, yeah, that's a popular choice right now on on Twitter. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, trending. So, use if I could have anyone, I'd have Brian Logan back. Hello, from last year's team. Oh yeah, sorry, okay. for, or for, sorry. sorry, from this year's team. Okay, yeah, yeah. this year's team. This yeah. year's team. So, yeah, sorry, I'm not. If you could just that. go back a few more years, that'd be great. You know, I can't. Uh, hmm. I can barely even walk yeah. now. You got bad hips now. Yeah, I, every time I laugh, I have a. Hernia. hernia pops out. That's TMI, man. <laughs> Your hernia pops out. <laughs> I'm just glad Brian got that hernia belt finally. That's oh, I am too. Do you remember yeah. how embarrassing that was, that thing just yeah. popping in and out? Speaking of hernia, we'll have John Beck on as well. He'll weigh in on uh, Bronson Kafusi, Tanner Mangum, the regular season finale with Utah State. We'll talk with Spencer Linton. Cool. Right now is live in the Marriott Center. Mm, uh, well, that's right. The women's basketball broadcast, which is live on BYU TV and BYU Radio, right after our show. One 1 p.m. Eastern time, oh, sweet. we'll talk to Spencer. And Gordon Eakin of the softball team talk about the new schedule and the signees. Ugh. Plus, the idea from an ESPN writer of BYU and Notre Dame playing a, a sort of independent de facto championship game. What do we think of that idea? And is it possible? I like it. Ain't That's all coming possible. up. You could throw Navy in there, right? You could throw all the independents well, in there. Navy is in the American Oh, I thought they were American yeah, Athletic yeah, Conference. Yeah, they right. were for a long time independent. Right now, they're the highest group of five team yeah. uh, ranked, so they have a chance to make a New Year's Six game. Ken Niamatololo, oh. uh, who's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is that coach. Say, I was that's huge. Say that's why that they're... Uh, ranked, they're that, doing well. That's why they're doing well, exactly. The well, grace, the grace. well, I thought the mission advantage would really put BYU over the top, but it, it hasn't um, for a while. They have grown. <laughs> oh, 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 do you mean you mean the fact that it's service, and so it's like thank you for helping but, out? I'm no, I'm the just Navy. making fun of the whole. Or is it mature you're 29 years old and you're a freshman? But the Navy has a mission too. Aren't they older too, though? And their mission is. Uh, yeah. Likewise, serious. And they, they, they get to use guns. I mean, let's be real. Are there guys older? I don't think so. I, I don't know. No. no, I don't I think, don't think so. they're older. But they they look great in white. They do, <sighs> yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> like you know when they're all dressed up. You know, it's a scientific fact. 
science. It's scientifically proven. It's science. It's it's science. Uh, I tried to give you science earlier, and you just poo pooed it. But um, poo poo. You poo pooed my eye gazing science. But yeah. anyway, you guys, oh, you're gonna have a great show. I feel good about it, and we'll do the eye gazing. We think so. Uh, remember, take it home to the wives. Maybe do it at home first. Break the become vulnerable. We're gonna leave you with this song. Give you a little eye to eye chance. This is for Brian. He's staring at me. Oh, is he staring at you? Is it awkward? <laughs> Have you reached the awkward stage yet? Or oddly comfortable. Push through or it. Oddly, or oddly comfortable. Or oddly. I'm, I'm much comfortable. more comfortable than I thought I'm I would be. comfortable with <laughs> Good Jared luck, gentlemen. <laughs> Have, a great, Have a great show. And just, Thanks. we'll Thanks, just leave Doctor. you look, looking at each other. <laughs> oh. Adele. I could, look, I could look in anyone's eyes if I was listening to Adele. She was on Jimmy Fallon last night. Huge. She's 500 downloads. That's a big deal. And now Terry's looking at Ben. Ben's looking at Terry. This is so great. I'm glad we could bring everyone together. Hey, everybody, go do that little eye-to-eye activity. I think that's just a... I I actually do it with my clients. And uh, it brings a lot of love in. Hey, I got to introduce this new product to you. Um... Nobody hates anything worse than soggy buns. So let's say you have a hamburger and you put your lettuce on it and lettuce got a little moisture on it. You put your you put uh, ketchup on it and mustard. And by the time you're ready to eat it, the bun's all soggy. If only there was some solution to the soggy bun problem. Well, there is, folks. It's called ketchup leather. Ketchup leather, leather is the condiment revolution you've been waiting for. Now what you can do is build your sandwich, your hamburger, dress it all up, and instead of soaking it in ketchup, you can just use ketchup leather, which is a drier, flatter version of the popular tomato-based condiment. Ketchup leather is very simply dehydrated ketchup. That's all it is. Just a layer of dehydrated ketchup. Just, I guess you could probably have it made in the size of a patty and just stick it on and then it just, it's there. That's what I think of with dehydrated ketchup. Ketchup leather. Let's hear that sound again. Ketchup leather. Yeah, that doesn't, we got to find a better sound for it. Work on that. It's like fruit roll-up, but it has the texture. It's it's a savory fruit roll-up. It's a tomato roll-up. Anyway, I don't think it's going to catch on. But uh, it will save your bun from getting all soggy for those of you that have that problem. Hey, we're going to wrap up the show as we do. We like to always end it with a hero story. Today's hero is a 16-year-old boy from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a young uh, hero who stopped an assault He's getting big thank yous from strangers. He said, I think Christmas should come early if you're shopping or if you're stopping hate crimes. Andrew Roberts said he was walking home when he saw two men beating an older black man using racial slurs. Roberts says it upset him and he wouldn't have felt right just walking away. He asked the man what they were doing, giving the victim time to escape. The men then turned on Roberts, punching and kicking him until he found safety in a nearby pizza shop. Roberts passed out after getting to the restaurant and said he suffered cuts, bruises, and a concussion. 
He's been having memory problems since the attack. Pittsburgh police arrested the two men, John Nash, 47, John Nash Jr., 47, and Anthony Hartman, 42, in connection with the assault. John Potter doesn't know Andrew, but his actions moved him. After hearing about what Andrew did, Potter posted a call on Reddit, and the donations started pouring in. Potter collected about $700 from complete strangers and used the money to buy a new Xbox One, six video games, and some clothes and a luxury beanbag chair for Andrew Williams. Potter delivered the presents to Roberts on Friday. Another stranger who heard about the story bought Roberts a new cell phone because he had heard he had lost his cell phone during the attack. And a college graduate student has offered to tutor Roberts in math and science. Roberts said he never expected any reward, and the response he's received has been overwhelming. Pretty cool story, huh? One person, Andrew Roberts, sees a need, steps in, saves a life, but also changes a community, folks. That's the power of the hero. You are one of those heroes. So would you take an opportunity today, tonight, somewhere, to reach out, help somebody, even just someone you love, make their life a little easier, or somebody in need? That's the goal of the show, to help you see the good in the world. We're going to uh, come back again tomorrow, another day full of tools and ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Until tomorrow, my friends, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Take care of each other and uh, make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.